I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast where I don't expect will be as brief as what we were last week. So if you were just expecting to listen to this on an hour's commute, no chance. I think we still might be quite brief, though, Steve. I've got to get this edited and published before I go to bed, so I'm hoping we're, we're not at our two-hour length or anything oh, like that. It's going to be long. There's going oh, to be some in-depth yeah. discussion on, on filmmaking and uh, the art of lighting in particular, I think. Uh, I'm Steve Norman, joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Always, almost keep saying Jerry McCauley. I can't get him out of my mind. Every every time I introduce everyone, I almost always get his name in there. The ghost haunting (laughs) the podcast. Mm. Miss you, Jerry. Did he even listen? Have we had any feedback from him? Do you know what? I I, I think he's he's got a... He's got an offer somewhere. He's on gardening leave. He's got an <laughs> offer from BBC or something. Oh, just turns up on the next Mayo and Commode. That's it, yeah. yeah. Bastard. Ditched us for the limelight. Stalled yeah. out, Jerry. You've stalled out. I always knew he'd be the first to. <laughs> he never... You had a bad feeling about him. Mm. <laughs> never mind all the... You don't the trust sort of... anyone northern, do you, Steve? <laughs> I don't trust anyone who lives north of Wareham. <laughs> Anyway, uh, quiz time. Owen is winning 2-0. If he wins this week, he gets to pick us a film or TV show to watch um, and then gets to be the quiz master for the next little period. So I'll start off with this person. Back to the Future, part 2, which is what it was... Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast, where I don't expect we'll be as brief as what we were last week. So if you were just expecting to listen to this on an hour's commute, no chance. I think we still might be quite brief, though, Steve. I've got to get this edited and published before I go to bed, so I'm hoping we're we're not at our two-hour length or anything oh, like that. It's going to be long. There's going to be some in-depth discussion on on filmmaking and uh, the art of lighting in particular, I think. Uh, I'm Steve Norman, joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. Always, almost keep saying Jerry McCauley. I can't get him out of my mind. Every, Every time I introduce everyone, I almost always get his name in there. The ghost haunting the podcast. <laughs> mm. Miss you, Jerry. Did he even listen? Have we had any feedback from him? Do you know what? I, I, I think he's, he's, just mega I busy think he's got a, 
He's got an offer somewhere. This is, he's on gardening leave. He's got an <laughs> offer from BBC or something. Ugh. Just turns up on the next Mayo and Commode. That's it, yeah. yeah. Bastard. Ditched us for the limelight. Sold yeah. out, Jerry. You've sold out. I always knew he'd be the first two. <laughs> he never... You had a bad feeling about him. Mm. <laughs> never mind all the... You don't the trust sort of... anyone northern, do you, Steve? <laughs> don't trust anyone who lives north of Wareham. <laughs> anyway, uh, quiz time. Owen is winning 2-0. Uh, if he wins this week, he gets to pick us a film or TV show to watch. Um, and then gets to be the quiz master for the next little period. So I'll start off with this person, Back to the Future Part 2, which is what it was releasing in France. It's Back to the Future Part 2 for anyone who speaks English. All right. Okay. James. Yes, James. Elizabeth Shue. No. Oh, fuck it out. Uh, in 1992... This risk. person was uh, nominated um, for young, uh, best young leading actor in a feature film for Radio Flyer. A young actor. Also, must have been like a bloody tiny kid in back in ninety-two. Macaulay Culkin. No. Oh. Uh, in nineteen ninety-six, this might be a giveaway. They were in the film Flipper. It's not a oh. dolphin then. No, he. See, I know. I know. Paul Hogan was in Flipper, wasn't he? But it's definitely not Paul Hogan. Uh, 1997. They are in the intriguingly named Ice Storm, or the Ice Storm. Sorry, uh, James. It. Yes, James. Is it, is it Elijah Wood? It is. Oh, yes. Clutch quizzing. <laughs> Clutch. Oh, I needed that. Hat amongst pigeons now. In the quiz. Oh, that feels good. I don't know what the ice storm is. I'm hoping it's a Ang Lee film with uh, uh, Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. I'm looking at it now, and it doesn't seem to be about um, a big ice storm, which I'm very disappointed about. <laughs> the film should not have misleading titles. It's more of a metaphorical ice storm, I believe. What, what, what is his role in Back to the Future 2, then? What does it say on the? Yeah, he the... is. It's, a, it's, a, it's basically a cameo, more or less. He is um, video Game Boy Two. When he go, when they go into the late, I can't remember what it is, but there's a video game. He is playing on the video game. Oh, what in the diner? Yes, I thought that was oh, quite. He's, commonly... he's the kid that Marty. Oh my god! I thought that's... that was quite commonly known. I did no, I had no idea. He called himself a film fan. I know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, failed, failed. Uh, he's also... <laughs> the start of everything. He is also a fan of uh, West Ham United, and I would have got onto the fantastic Green Street. Oh, Green Street, yeah. Me... Or as it's called in America, Green Street Hooligans. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mm. Green Street 3 is out next week. That is not one of my recommendations. I'm going to watch it, so I've seen all of the trilogy, and I'll be reviewing that for you next week. Providing <laughs> <laughs> I can watch it without paying any money. Yeah. You keep making all these promises, Steve. Yeah. No, you never fulfil on them, so I'm really going to expect which, you to, to get hold of this. Which ones haven't I fulfilled? Oh, there was the promise to watch, was it five films in a week? You were going to watch five <laughs> films for us and talk about more? Which, I never said which week, did I? <laughs> I suppose. Like, yeah. Cunning like a fox. <laughs> uh-huh. 
Yes, I'm yeah. like I'm like Baldrick with a brain. <laughs> anyway, news time, and James and Owen both have some news for us. Uh, James, why don't you start off with yours? Yeah, well, mine's not hugely news. Um, it's just to let us know that the London Film Festival is up and running. We've had the gala premiere of Captain Phillips. Uh, we've also had a big, um, big screening of Gravity as well. We, unfortunately, none of us here uh, live in London can get down to London, but luckily we have a new contributor to Fail Critics, um, Carol Petz, who is down in London Film Festival. She's already written a diary for uh, for us on failcritics.com. She's got a review of Gravity, um, an overview of An Evening with Clint Mansell, the um, film scorer, and hopefully we'll be able to persuade Carol to come on the podcast next week to tell us all about her London Film Festival. Not a real life woman. Yeah, calm yourself, Steve. I can't believe that. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd expand our demographic by saying I, Owen, Owen sorted all this out and I've just swooped in and gone, yeah, do it. I'm like Rupert Murdoch. I just saw that she was going to London Film Festival and I was like, oh, right, let's start tweeting you and try and uh, coax you into it. Doing some work for us. Owen tweeting women, trying to coax them into things. Yes, it's not never going to end. Well. He comes on the podcast, you two have to calm down your rampant home, um, uh, sex, sexism and misogyny. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Me, me and Owen are the ones on the podcast. Ism was quite important on that word then. <laughs> yes, I've got the wrong word stuck in my head then. And yeah. But you need to cut that out as well. What I was going to say, <laughs> stop it. What's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, That's our news, was it? <laughs> uh, uh, we, and Owen's got a bit of news yes, for Owen's us as well. Got some news. Uh, yeah, I do have a little bit of news, which I thought was quite exciting. I'm not really a fan of Doctor Who, but it's been announced this week that uh, the director Ben Wheatley is going to direct the first few episodes with Peter Capaldi on board as the new Doctor, which I thought was quite exciting. Uh, I quite like Ben Wheatley. I, I like his films uh, that I've seen. I think I've seen all of his speech films, but. I think he did a few shorts. Uh, he also he has got ex- a little bit of experience with TV. Started out on um, actually I'm not sure what he started out on, but I did uh, the first time I saw any of his work was on the TV show Ideal, mm. starring Johnny okay. Vegas as the Mancunian drug dealing, mm-hmm. black living loser basically, and it was really good, very dark and quite funny. Not as adult as perhaps some of his films have, have tended to be, you know, quite shockingly disturbingly violent some of them um so it'd be an interesting take on doctor who stories i'm sure whatever he does but um yeah i mean as i say i'm not really a fan of doctor who but i might actually be tempted to give it a go since it's got one of my favorite british tv actors in it and directed by one of my favorite currently working british directors so yeah so it'd be like i said be interesting yeah yeah no i'm I'm, it is it is does feel like quite a big way to launch the new Doctor, which is um, which is important, I think, because there are there is this kind of sense that possibly Capaldi could be overshadowed by the 50th anniversary mm. show out next month. So I'm I'm really really pleased. And I'm, do you know what? Fair play to the BBC for just sticking their neck out and actually going a going after someone like Ben Wheatley. And following through and giving him a couple of episodes, I, I, I'm, I've got quite high hopes of that. So uh, it, it should certainly, whatever you think of Wheatley stuff, he's certainly not boring. Uh, he also so hopefully the Go Compare advert. 
Oh, he what? did, yeah. Oh, <laughs> really? So yeah. that's um, yeah. interesting. Yeah, he's pushed. He's got a. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming he was just a director looking for work. Then, to be fair, <laughs> they're quite recent. Some of these adverts. He's done a yeah. lot of TV adverts, but a lot of film directors have as well. Obviously. Jonathan Glazer made his name originally in yeah. adverts. So yeah, I know. Yeah. You know. um, Ridley Scott Ridley Scott George made Romero did as well that's who he started yeah, exactly. and then he started so taking on commercialism with his uh, <laughs> yeah his films so but um, but yeah like like you said though I think he'll, it, he's an interesting director and yeah. it, it it definitely won't be boring at the very least no. uh, so that's all for the news and after a break me and Owen will fall out <laughs> Uh, for what we've been watching this week, James will kick us off. And what have you watched this week, James? Okay, uh, I'm going to talk about a film which I still don't quite know how to judge, formulate. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm surprised it took me so long to watch, actually. I, 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 this week I watched for the first time Crank High Voltage, or Crank 2, uh, depending on... on I don't know where it was released or something like that. Basically, it's the 2009 follow-up to the 2006 film, which I think we've I think we've spoken about Crank on here before. It is a ridiculous um, action film, but actually a very enjoyable one. Um, the the plot of which is basically speed in a man. Uh, you know, if he goes below 50, he dies. Um, in Crank High Voltage, at the well at the end of Crank, I, I'm sure it's not. I'm, I don't like to spoil things, but basically at the end of Crank, he's kind, is he dead, is he not? There's a bit of a whoa. And then starts Crank 2, straight away, straight in, um, continues almost seamlessly from the first film. And this time, instead of having to get his adrenaline going because of a Chinese poison, um, a Chinese mobster has stolen the indestructible Chev Chelios heart. Um and replaced it with a battery-powered heart that requires regular bouts, uh, regular jolts of electricity. And is this scientifically accurate? Sound? Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I believe um, this is near documentary-level realism. Um, it just sounds oh, stupid otherwise. They haven't done their research. It sounds uh, yeah, exactly. Bad. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't imagine they wouldn't it's, have done their it's research. It's watertight. There is no no flaws in any of their science. Not, not so, including including a moment where at some point it's just revealed to us that oh, actually friction will do the job, and so Jason Statham returning as Chev Chelios just rubs himself up and down against an old woman uh, a, a track, a horse racing track. One of the uh, basic, I put it on, and my wife walked in, and she she saw like two minutes of it, and went, "Is this a dream sequence?" <laughs> I went, "Nope." The entire film has been like this. It is one of the weirdest experiences of watching a film I've had. Um, weird for me, this was weirder than Holy Motors. Holy Motors last year seemed to have more internal logic. Than anything that goes on in Crank High Voltage, honestly, <laughs> I I I was struggling. There are biz- bizarre acting performances. Jason Statham is brilliant as the as Chev Chelios, one of my favourite named characters of all time. Um, he he does his Jason Statham thing and it's great and it's fun. Um, but 
most of the other characters in this seem to be kind of from amateur dramatics. In, and you know, it, there's a there's this weird prostitute that keeps just pulling a a Vogue esque pose as she says something to him. Um, there are what I will say. There, there are kind of Mexican Maori men cutting off their own nipples at times. There, this film is it messed me up in the same way that Owen didn't quite know what he felt about Michael Haneke's Hidden or Cachet. Um, I, I feel exactly the same about Crank 2. I still don't quite know what I've watched. Probably the only time those two films will ever be compared. I, I completely agree. <laughs> uh, it's, you have, it, you it have is mentioned just... Hidden and Holy Motors in the same review of Crank 2. I know. <laughs> and this this is what's really messing my head. Well, I, I think ultimately, if... This is the kind of movie I always thought Roger Corman would still be making. It's it, it's spirit that um, is that of Death Race two thousand, um, the uh, David Carradine film where David Carradine is, plays a man in a black gimp mask for no apparent <laughs> reason, driving Sylvester Stallone is some weird machine gunning. That's a really weird film. This is this is its spiritual successor. Uh, loads of I, I love bits of it. Bits of it are absolute genius. The opening credits in kind of eight bit computer graphics were great fun. Um, there are some great fight scenes in it, and then some bits of it are some of the worst things I've ever seen committed to film. And it just doesn't care. It do, I, I honestly don't. When they were making it, it was like they honestly didn't look beyond what they were doing on set. They hadn't. They didn't give a shit what anyone else was going to think about this because they were just coming up with weird ideas and then going, right, yeah, let's film that then. It's visually really interesting. It's very dynamic um, and it's it's certainly never boring, but it's it takes the the homophobia, the misogyny, the racism to new bizarre levels where it just keeps battering you with offensive idea after offensive image that you just get battered into submission and go maybe maybe some of this is funny i don't know anymore it's hurting my head please make it stop but i can't turn it off um i i really it's one of those i'm really glad i've seen it but it is one of those films that almost just defies reviewing in a sense because and, and i don't want to make it more important than it really is it's it's exploitation fluff um but it is just carried off with so much confidence that that almost gives it some kind of level of importance um i think i think the key to it must be the fact that jason statham is just a fantastic heart to build this um film around because the other films that uh neville dean and um taylor have done who are the writers and directors are gamer which i've heard i've not seen but i've heard very very bad things about um ghost rider spirit of vengeance and they're currently doing yeah yeah, and, you know, not even Nick Cage can save that. And they're currently doing the Vatican. They're in post-production on what looks like to be yet another Vatican-based exorcism <laughs> fucking horror film called The Vatican Tapes with Dougray Scott in. Um, I, I, part, part of me just wants them to just make a crank film every year. I, I would, I would watch it. It's, it. 
it has that kind of it really has that punk anarchic um exploitation vibe of the 70s and i don't think anyone makes films quite like that um so in that sense i suppose it works it's not as good as the original crank but it is it's more mental mm. um and it's it's almost a, a series of skits rather than a a kind of coherent film but bits of it are some of the best some of my favorite bits of a film i've seen all year so I, I really don't know how to explain it but if you've not seen it and you enjoyed crank it's worth a watch if you if you watched crank and went well this is ridiculous just stay well clear of this 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 will this will hurt you in so many ways so yeah that's that's what i kind of think of crank too silence <laughs> yeah it's one of those films though i think the first one is is in a way brilliant it, i mean it mm. properly it sits in the, the genre of action film but it's completely exploiting every aspect of action films to the point that when you're watching it it's just so exhilarating and fun mm. and and funny as well as fun um mm. to watch crank High Voltage, I found, was just kind of the same thing repeated, the same formula repeated, um, but with different and perhaps more wacky and zany things to mm. it. Um, which is like what... the scene where there's just porn stars on strike shouting at Chev Chelios, and you've got Ron Jeremy yeah. and Jenna Hayes shouting, and there, there's no sense to it. No. He, he's just, that, that would, there's too many moments like that where you go, you just wanted to have some porn stars on strike. That was your joke, mm. was that porn stars might go on strike. That was your joke. It makes no sense to this film. No. But and that's the problem. You've got to give it credit for having the balls to just do all of this stuff, you know? Oh, exactly. I, I'm glad that, I, I am glad that, in a way, it's really nice to see someone working in film that seems to have no internal sensor. No. I, it, it, you know, they, they literally put everything they think of on screen yeah, which, and they don't which some works yeah. and some doesn't because there are yeah. parts of Crank High Voltage which I there's some like you've mentioned it already with the old lady it's very can I complain about it being very sexist and misogynistic when it's that Absolutely. kind of film some of it felt a bit exploitative yeah I, and the fact is pretty much the only two speaking parts for women in the film are yeah. a prostitute and a stripper it's kind of um, making it they don't really have a place in this kind yeah. of film unless they're but th- and, and i was thinking i'm watching it thinking that thinking oh, that's actually making me really uncomfortable but then you see a mexican gang boss make one of his underlings cut off his own nipples and there's not a woman in sight there and you think they just seem to hate everyone actually. yeah that's that's its saving grace i think it's just it's indiscriminate it's, um, yeah. you know discrimination <laughs> <I suppose>. yeah <laughs> okay Owen uh, what did you watch um, I watched I, I'm very 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 briefly going to mention it because I'm waiting for you guys to see it first before we can have a proper discussion I saw a preview of Captain Phillips on Monday I'm not saying anything about it I'm not going to give a, re- a review mm-hmm. as you know I'll just say that yeah Tom Hanks is pretty good I thought Tom Hanks was pretty good. The Somali Pirates, all four of them, just as good, if not maybe better, um, in this film. Very interesting. So, yeah, I'll wait to see what you guys see. Uh, to wait till you guys have seen it before we, mm-hmm. we talk anymore. More, more, more interesting now the true, true story has been revealed. It's a true, true story, yeah. Uh, 
see, I had this problem. I read about the true, true story um, before I went to see the film, and I thought, oh, I, shouldn't, I should have waited, because it basically makes it Captain Phillips is different in real life to how he is in the film, um, in a rather negative way. But right. I'm going to, like I say, I'll wait till you guys have seen it before we talk about that, because it's, it's, it's worth us having an in-depth discussion about that again, yeah. I think. All I'd say is, I just just for me, very very. I've not seen it yet. I I hadn't. It was only recently I found out it was based on a tr- on a specific true story. I thought it was just kind of inspired by the fact that lots of these boats have been done. So it's not for me. It's as someone going to watch it. Argo, for example, was very specifically based on a true story, which had a lot of bits and pieces changed some big some small and things like that whereas i'll be honest me going to watch this i'm not too bothered about accuracy because what i want to see is some kind of somali pirate hijacking film well it's that, i mean that. it's based on a true story in so much as it's you want to see die hard on a boat don't you that's that is ideal by paul greengrass see, yeah. yeah but i mean yeah yeah <laughs> it, haven't we already had it hasn't didn't van damme do one of those or seagal yeah. I mean, this is based on a true story in so much as it's Captain Phillips' version of the true story. Right. Okay, you know? yeah. So uh, they may have changed some of his story to reflect the actual, yeah. you know, make it into a more of a, um, an interesting kind of film. Um, but there are people who were paid off to not say anything about what actually went down who come out anonymously recently and said, no, oh, it's different. It's very different. So I, I really didn't want to spend too long yeah. talking about anyway, it because it just yeah. feels like we're having a very fragmented conversation. So I'm, I'll move straight on to what I have seen this week and what I am going to review. Um, I watched uh, Ip Man or Yip Man. I think it's called Yip Man, actually. It's spelled Ip Man, I-P Man. It's by a director called Wilson Yip, with a Y, um, who I, I actually watched Yip Man this week because a friend of mine called Martin who follows the podcast but is not on Twitter he just sends me messages on Facebook he um, pointed me in the direction of a Donnie Yen film hi Martin um, sorry just yeah, hello, Martin. say hi to him <laughs> of a Wilson Yip film sorry um, called Biozombie which I'd never heard of which is this Cantonese version of um, Dawn of the Dead almost set inside of a shopping centre and it's kind of a goofy comedy that's quite a black comedy and features flesh-eating zombies. So it sounded very interesting. It launched the career of Wilson Yip and is this huge like cult film in Hong Kong and China. So that's one for me to check out. But I figured that as it's by the same director and I've got Yip Man and Yip Man 2 sitting on my Sky Planner since about a year ago, I thought I'd get around to watching at least one of them. So I started on that. It's a sort of biographical story of uh, the guy called Yip Man, unsurprisingly who is a martial arts master, perhaps one of the greatest martial arts masters um, who we've got records of, who taught martial arts in Hong Kong just before the outbreak of... Um, no, no, see, this is me working without any notes. It's in it's the Second World War. I'm pretty sure it was the Second World War. <laughs> so it starts off, the first half of the film is all about him... Um, with his uh, little, uh, he's got his, his wife and his, his son and there's a business partner who's just setting up a business and he's helping out and there's some guys who come to this, this village and they all, in in South China, this is based, and they challenge all the Kung Fu masters in the village to fight. So it's a very simple, typical almost martial arts film 
Um, then what happens is you have the outbreak of Second World War, you have the Japanese invasion of China, um, and it, the screen fades to black, it explains what's happened, and it comes back on again, and the streets are war-torn, um, people are being um, made to, you know, scrap for work, trying to find whatever food and, and money they can get from doing whatever jobs they can get hold of, mostly we see people working in a cotton mill. You see all these people who were sort of grandmasters who are now um, working in a mine, digging coal, um, basically doing all these terrible jobs for the Japanese. And it then becomes a story of this of Yip Man who defies them. Um, he stands up for what he believes is right. And it's, like I say, it's, it's basically a, a, a biographical story because he's a real man. This is the guy who mm. um, who did stand up to the Japanese and it's his one-man rebellion and how it influenced the whole nation of China to stand up for themselves. Um, in many respects, have you seen the, the Jet Li film Fearless? I think Fearless is probably a more well-known film just because it's got Jet Li in it. Um, no, I haven't, no. Okay, that deals with a different martial arts master, but it's very much the same sort of thing where they use their... Um, their skills, their knowledge, their wisdom, if you like, to uh, stand up to their oppressors. And it's, how about, it's about how they can change the world around them. And I think it's a very interesting film. It stars uh, a guy called Donnie Yen, who I haven't seen in anything else, but he's uh, a really good actor, actually. He plays Yip Man. Um, very charismatic in this. I mean, for a guy who uh, is known for just... Be, Everyone around him just worships him. He's just a very cool man. Never loses, um, lose, never loses his cool, and he's just such a, a great actor. It's really hard to explain his performance because he's very understated in his role. There are times where he gets quite animated, um, which is very rare, and it take, you, you get the sense that it probably did take quite a lot to annoy him, and it put him under a lot of pressure to um, to get to the stage he gets at in this film. Um, but you also get the sense of the real man that he's portraying. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, it's like I say, fantastic performance from him. I've yet to see the sequel, which I've heard is actually not quite as good as Yip Man. But as a martial arts film, it's very good. As a biography, it's very good as well. And as a sort of war drama, I think it's quite good. So it sort of ticks a lot of boxes and maybe doesn't quite get into the territory where... It's one of the best of its genre in any of those genres, but at the same time, it's it's very enjoyable, very well made. Some of the shots in it are brilliant, especially of um, of their village just after the, the breakout of the World War, and you, it, it does become a very personal film. You can feel um, so, yeah, very interesting. And like I say, the the, Don, the guy who Donnie Yen plays, Yip Man, he's a real person. He's probably most well known for, and it's plastered across all the posters and every review you see of this. He's the guy who trained Bruce Lee. So uh, he becomes the guy who Bruce Lee learns from okay. and stuff. So you go through the process of this of watching this film. You never get to the point in this film of that stage in his life where he's this martial arts master who trains people. He doesn't have any apprentices or anything like that. So it's all about his early life. But yeah, very interesting to note, I think, because um, it's just a very larger-than-life character. So it's quite an inspiring story. So, yeah, very glad that I watched it. A lot of people have recommended it. I think Duke recommended it to me a long time ago on Twitter, at Duke. Um, so, yeah, picking up from there as well. Worth a watch, especially if you like martial arts movies. Okay. Um, so, Owen, this is where me and you are going to fall out. 
Yeah, bring it on then, Steve. Let's see where I, you're going with this. I'm, I'm assuming, anyway. Um, the film that I watched this week, I'm going to talk about. Actually, briefly, before I start, Walking Dead started season four in America. It's on UK TV Friday night. Won't uh, say too much, but it started pretty solidly. So if you're a fan of good. that, it's starting in good in good fashion. Um, I think it's on FX on Friday night, if you don't know how to acquire it from America. Um, before then Uh, anyway so I watched Evil Dead 2 and right (laughs) uh, Mm. I did not like it what the hell's wrong with you have you seen it before is that your first time watching it it was the first time I can remember watching it I've seen the first one and I like the first one a lot the first first one's very good it's it's got you know some actually quite creepy moments in it but it's also quite funny and the effects are quite good and if you know the, the characters are quite good in in this one evil dead 2 um carries on where the first film left off um ash is at the cabin out in the woods um he gets possessed he gets some possessed then the professor's daughter is looking into the book of dead turns up some other people and all the basically evil stuff that happened in the first film happens in this one to all the people and it, it just feels like a parody of the first film to me it just um, feels kind of um a mix tape like a pretty shoddy mix there never felt like there was any kind of creepy moments in it the the humor was done badly i think there was too much slapstick in it which was just a bit rubber the effects didn't have the same you know they're pretty much the same kind of special effects or effects whatever makeup puppets whatever didn't have the same effect on me. Um, the characters generally, Asher, I liked in the first one, just irritated me in this one for the most part. It just seemed a bit silly compared, which seems a bit stupid thing to say based on the premise of the film and the first film, but it, it just seemed like a parody of Evil, the, the original Evil Dead. Either like someone had remade it or someone had made kind of a, a spoof version of it. Yeah. Well, I don't think that. That's you know you're not the only person who's had that problem with it. I think a lot of people found that they didn't know what it was. <laughs> Is it a remake? Is it a sequel? It's kind of I think both. Um, in so much as it was the film that Sam Raimi I think he finally got a budget for the film he wanted to make, so just decided to do the same thing again, um, but bigger and better. And yeah, it is very slapstick, but I I kind of find that like it. it that's its charm, I think. Instead yeah. of being outright serious and perhaps looking a bit dated, like The Evil Dead possibly does to some people. Not to me. I think it's still a really good film. The Evil Dead. It's the problem for me. I can get over a film looking dated. It, it, it just seems like an absolute parody of the first one, which was excellent. But it, it kind of is a parody. So to. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I can't. <laughs> I can't understand how it could be a criticism of Evil Dead Two that it's a parody when it it sort of is a parody. Well, maybe maybe the me saying it's like a parody isn't a criticism. I just didn't like it. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. I just I just didn't find it had anything that the first, the original film had. It it was just trying to do that or trying to take the mick out of that and didn't work. Either way, whatever it was trying to do didn't work, and it fell a bit flat for me. But then everyone else, by and large, seems to rate it. So yeah, I, I really like it. I, 
I, I do really like Evil Dead too. Perhaps perhaps Evil Dead is the better film because some of the points you made they they are true. It is it is very slapstick, which if you're not in the mood for it will be quite annoying. I don't agree that Ash is uh, annoying in it for a start. That's what that's your first problem, Steve. Ash is just not annoying. <laughs> He's one of the best horror film characters that you can have. One of the best heroes of a horror film, at least. Well, he doesn't seem very heroic in this one to me. He just seems like a bit of an oaf. <laughs> well, uh, I, I will give Army, Army of Darkness a try and see if the trilogy can redeem itself at my age. Yeah, so if you don't like the goofy slapstick in Evil Dead 2, you're probably not going to like yeah. Army of Darkness. Yeah, Army of Darkness is just... Army of Darkness is essentially a comedy. Yeah. But a good one. Yeah, but a very good one. Yeah. Uh, no. um, I actually had to... Evil Dead 2 actually scared me so much I had to turn it off. The first time I watched it, uh, it was on VHS and uh, I was in the house on my own and I actually had... The moment that um, the hand mm. starts coming for him, I actually had to turn it off. I was like, I'm not going to sleep tonight after that. And it's weird because it is quite a funny, slapsticky film, but there was just something... Just horribly the, creepy about that hand coming and forward. the trapdoor thing as well you know yeah. change across it and just constantly bumping and the voice that comes out of it and it's just yeah. that is I think that's really creepy and I think that's one of the things yeah. it improves on from the first film actually as well as yeah. some of the um, the gore in it I think it's much more like a director who's got a handle on how to do it properly in Evil Dead 2 mm-hmm. which maybe some people didn't like might have taken some of the shine off of or added too much shine to what was already there in Evil Dead but I, you know I think they, it was done very masterfully uh, in my research for this though and I did see that Army of Darkness 2 has been announced yeah I don't really? know what that's going to be like because they've just done the Evil or it's just called Evil Dead the remake that yeah. came out this year which I quite liked it was good for uh, a remake anyway and a modern mm. horror um but yeah, I don't don't see how they can do an Army of Darkness sequel or remake or that it's seems just, weird. Yeah. yeah, and modern horror sequels never seem to work. You know, Hills and Boys Apparently, it's something to do with a post-credit scene in the remake of Evil Dead, which stars Bruce Campbell being Ash. Mm. Oh um, right. In the remake, so um, the post-credit scene. Actually... Is... I. If they're actually going to give Bruce Campbell a nice big role, though, I'll, I'm in. There you go. That's all I'm going <laughs> to He yeah. doesn't does need more work. I mean, I have liked quite a lot of the stuff I've seen him in. He, he, I think he does all right out of um, public appearances and speaking tours and stuff like that. I've got a uh, book of his called If If uh, Chins Could Kill, which is just a great book. Um, and... Yeah, I think he he does all right, well, which is good. Bubba Hotep was very America, good. Is he in Burn Notice? Is, yeah. is he a major part in that? He's is got it? Yeah, a recurring character in it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's good. Called Sam Axe. Is it? I didn't like Burn Notice. It was just. I've never watched really it. Cheesy spy drama y stuff. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, that's all for what we've been watching. Uh, after this break, we have got um, our reviews of some new releases. Um, including The Fifth Estate, uh, How I Live Now, and The Great Hip Hop Hoax. Uh, so, James, do you want to kick off our new releases? 
Yeah, okay, big release this week has been the the Fifth Estate, the thriller. Basically, it's a bit of a social network esque um, tech thriller uh, about the the rise of WikiLeaks and its founder Julian Assange. It's directed by Bill Condon, who I, I knew I knew the name, couldn't work out why. His m- most recent films have been the the last two Twilight films, um, which made me suddenly doubt a lot of things. Um, it stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Julian Assange and uh, Daniel Brühl, who we've seen recently in Rush, um, as basically his co-founder. It, what I would say is, actually, a lot of the plot to this really does just follow the social network. I don't know if it's because that's the best dramatic way to bring these um, tech world stories to screen or if that's just what happens when people start up websites, they eventually end up hating each other. I'm not sure quite how. Um, it's it's based on uh, the book that Daniel Berg, who is the Daniel Brühl character, um, wrote, and another book as well, also written by someone who's fallen out with Julian Assange. And so you can kind of imagine where this film is coming from. Um, it's It's a competent decent made thriller um it's nothing amazing uh the direction is at times lackluster and too frenetic uh if that makes much sense and sometimes it's just doing too much and it's trying to be oh look this is about the internet so let's use some visual trickery because this is all high tech um but you're essentially still just looking at two people hammering away at keyboards you know uh it's, it follows a period of three years, essentially, leading up to the WikiLeaks war logs uh, that they published alongside The Guardian, The New York Times and The Spiegel in Germany. Peter Capaldi gets to play Alan Rusbridger, the uh, Guardian editor, gets a small part here. David Thewlis, um, really good to see him back on the big screen. He plays a Guardian uh, journalist who kind of cultivates WikiLeaks as the next big media organisation, essentially. And so you see... And and I think where the film works best is where you see the birth of WikiLeaks. You see the idealism of Julian Assange, and you see the kind of trickery, the fact that he's basically living out of a bag, his obsession. um, And that's where I think... Benedict Cumberbatch's best work is making Julian Assange this actual this character that you can believe on screen because I think we've heard a lot about Julian Assange. Uh, we will have read lots of things about him and WikiLeaks, but what this it does humanise him. Uh, it does humanise him. And I think that's very important. Um, Daniel Bull's character is basically our proxy into the world of WikiLeaks. Um, he he becomes a real driving force behind the website and a big part of the really good work that they do. And and this is where the politics of this film come in. You cannot watch this film in isolation. You can. Okay, I say you can't. You can. You can watch this film as just a tech thriller in isolation away from the very real world situation going on with Assange and WikiLeaks and um, debates around privacy from government spies and things like that taking place in the world at the moment. And if you did that, it's a relatively competent thriller. What frustrated me about the film and what I didn't like about the film, actually, was that it 
does have a very clear agenda um and that agenda is an establishment agenda about about two thirds through the way f- uh, of the way through the film Assange isn't eccentric but doing some good things he's a passionate man makes some bad mistakes but he's doing some good things he's uncovering corruption in Africa uh, and South America and places like that and it's basically saying look he's a good man the moment that it switches to a focus on um, the US uh, war in Afghanistan and looking into what the US government are doing the film takes a very judgmental view of Assange and turns him into this despot on screen almost instantly. Um, and this ties in with earlier this week, for some reason, I don't know why we had to have the Prime Minister of this country talking to us about what Benedict Cumberbatch's performance in The Fifth Estate was like, but for some reason people saw fit to think that that was news, that David Cameron thought that Benedict Cumberbatch's performance was excellent and really captured Assange's twitchiness. And then he went on to talk about the good work that WikiLeaks had done in Africa, but in recent years they've been terribly naughty and they shouldn't have been looking at British and American stuff because we're not bad, but the Africans are. That this is This is what happened. You watch this film and you start to actually think, I don't like what you're doing here. I don't like what you're saying here. This is part of a of a preset agenda. The fact is the film's produced by DreamWorks, this huge multi-billion pound corporation, and you start to realise, yeah, they're not actually going to paint this small startup website which is devoted to exposing government corruption and trying to bring transparency. Whether you agree with their methods and things like that, ultimately a Hollywood studio was never going to go isn't it great what WikiLeaks have been doing? And that just starts to really seep through the film. And towards the end of the film, it becomes really bogged down with this preachy, judgmental um, ideas about what WikiLeaks are about. And the key thing that really summed it up for me was it spent an inordinate amount of time on this Argo-esque um, story of an American source in Libya that had to escape to Egypt, spent about 20 minutes on the story of this person, which, for all intents and purposes, doesn't even exist. Um, As if to say, look, this is what could have happened if the information had fallen into the wrong hands. Um, So it's it's a far from even-handed approach to WikiLeaks, and it's not even that great. It's saving great. Daniel Brühl is good in it. Uh, I like Daniel Brühl a lot. he was far, far better in Rush, far better used in Rush. The the saving grace of this film is Benedict Cumberbatch's performance, which is fantastic. And um, in a way, kind of reminiscent of uh, Bruno Ganz's perform, um, uh, performance as Hitler in Downfall, in the way that it humanises someone who has become a real bete noir for uh, modern media and things like that. Um I'm not comparing Assange to Hitler. I just realised I did that, didn't mean to. Very, very different people. But you're looking at some the performance of someone, uh, a very talented actor, who is inhabiting his character. And that's the, the good thing about the film. Most of the rest of it is pretty average and at times a little distasteful. How's Cumberbatch's accent? So I've heard a few, Excellent. I've heard a few, only little bits on, the, on trailers and things and... Yeah, oh, no, no, it's an excellent accent. And the thing is, 
because Assange himself isn't a traditional Australian. He he's he's a globe trotter. He's travelled around the world, so his accent has mutated. Um, and, and yeah, no, Cumberbatch. What I would say is um, maybe I don't know. Maybe if you put them right up next to each other, you'd be able to go. Actually, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. But it it's good enough to make you believe that he is Julian Assange which and it reminds me a little bit actually of um Michael Douglas playing uh, Liberace in uh, behind the candelabra I don't I don't actually know that I know what Assange looks like but I've not heard him talk that often and I wouldn't be able to recall it um but Cumberbatch is so believable that that doesn't matter so I don't know much about Assange but Cumberbatch makes me believe he is Assange and, and what what of Daniel Brawl? Is he going to be kind of what Christoph Waltz was and like kind of a, a foreign language or foreign uh, actor who kind of breaks into Hollywood mainstream in America just through being brilliant? I think he's, well, he's young enough to actually get a few more leading man type roles than Christopher, Christoph Waltz. Um, but I, I really hope it does lead to... Um, more success for him because I, I do really really like him as an I've actor. Seen him in much. I mean, obviously he's been in the Fifth Estate. He was Nicky Lauder in Rush. He was in uh, Inglorious Bastard as well. Wasn't yeah, he? Christoph Waltz and, and one or two other things that I don't think I've seen. Yeah, and he's been in quite a lot of German cinema. And and every time I've seen him there, he has been absolutely brilliant. He's in the uh, Bader Meinhof complex, I think. Oh, it's long, a while since I've seen that. He's in Goodbye Lenin. Um, he's in The Educators. Um, he's he's a very very good actor. Like I say, I don't think in this he's used particularly brilliantly. He he does a very good job, um, but his character's a little bit boring. I'll be honest. Considering it's the character who basically wrote the book that the film is based on, he's a bit of a boring character. Um, but he 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 does very well with this. No, I do, I do hope that we'll see a lot more of Daniel Bruhl uh, on our screens, as well as also doing some some great German cinema as well. Uh, Owen, uh, tell us about How I Live Now then. Okay, right. Yes, How I Live Now. It's a dystopian British film by a British director called Kevin MacDonald, starring Saoirse Ronan. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. I have checked it that's on, very good. on Wikipedia. Yeah, Saoirse Ronan, not Suarez or Saoirse or whatever it is. Um, as an American teenager who's sent to live with her aunt and cousins uh, in the British countryside on the eve of World War Three, just before it's about to break out. You get the sense as she's arriving at the airport that something big is happening. Um, but being a typical teenager, she's just got headphones in, not paying attention to the news. She's just Listening a bit missed. Bieber and all that shit. YOLO. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Well, she's just a bit missed that she's been um, sent away by her dad, as she sees it, um, because her, apparently you find out later on um, he's had a baby, a new baby, and it's just that oh, she's just now being ignored. What you see from the trailer for the film is that she meets a boy there, um, and she falls in love with this boy, and then they get separated, and it's all about the journey for these two lovers getting back to each other. It does look, from the trailer, admittedly, like a typical teen lit adaptation, uh, with the star-crossed emo lovers finding their way back to each other with tons of cheesy romance in it. And, um, yeah, I mean, even despite my love of most dystopian fiction and noting that the, it was actually rated a 15, which is unusually high for this type of thing, 
I, I had very little interest in seeing it because I thought it's just uh, a typical teen romance. Why would I be interested in going to the cinema to watch that? I did see a few reviews that came through, uh, and this is where I think reviews can be quite helpful. They came through and they were saying, ignore the trailer, it's very misleading. It's just because they don't really know how to market the film, so they've just put it out there as a, a you know to try and capture it. It's been, it's been advertised a lot on E4 and Channel 4, hasn't it? It's kind of some yeah. kind of tie-in with mm. their movie going yeah that's right and the original book that it's based on won a children's book award as well didn't yeah. it so the, so, the source material is kind of like um young adult young adult yeah but the way yeah. that it's been advertised on um particularly as i say the trailer and when it's been shown on things like e4 and and so on it's it's come across as very much a a sort of young teenager to mid teenagers sort of when, it, when it's advertised on e4 it's always on at like the same time as some crap American sitcoms on, so it kind of yeah. Trying to think, it's to tie into the same audience that watches that, I suppose. Yeah, that's what I. That's why I wasn't interested in it at all to begin with until I'd read those reviews. So, uh, as it turns out, those reviews that I did read were right. It is very misleading from the trailers. It's um, not a typical teen romance in many respects. There are a few teen, a uh, few moments in it where you get the impression that they didn't really know how to adapt to the source material to be anything more than just a teen lit adaptation. But then there are other bits in it that are really quite complex. So, first of all, there's a, a sex scene in it, which is a little bit unexpected. I mean, I did realise it was 15 and it was about these two teenage um, um, lovers. But, yeah, it's quite... Um, not graphic, but it goes on for mm. a bit. So that was interesting. Then there was um, a sort of implied rape scene which was also very unexpected and mm. there is a lot of gratuitous violence towards both women and children so for you know to start off with those aren't really what you kind of expect in a film that's that's marketed in this way not that i'm saying that's a good that they're good things or necessarily bad mm. things on their own they don't make or break a film but just to say that you know again it's made the trailer seem very misleading i think mm. There's even for the briefest moment, if this is your sort of thing, a, a kind of semi-naked or fully naked, but you don't really see a lot of her, um, Saoirse Ronan. So if that's what you're looking for in this kind of film, you do get a bit of that. It's in the dark and as she's running through some woods, but there you go. Um, there's also, uh, I mean, yeah, there's the, the, okay, <laughs> it was very weird and it was it didn't actually occur to me until the very next day when I was thinking about it and I had to text my wife and say hang on a minute was this have I got this right it's a bit weird she's gone to stay in this English countryside she's with her cousins are you putting are you, are you ahead of me yet you're putting together that they're her cousins and it's her lover and there's a sex scene whoa yeah a bit yeah. weird <laughs> that was one of the things that suddenly occurred to me and I was just thinking where, where in um, England what? Did it, where, where in England is the film based because I mean there's some Norfolk <laughs> this is them. I mean, it brother and sister, they'd go for. So, I mean... It doesn't give a specific place, or if it does, then it's not mm. somewhere I recognise. All you all you really know is it's far enough away from London. Right. Okay, so... Oh, yeah, because England is London and the countryside. London and then everywhere else. <laughs> so, it's far <laughs> enough away and from London. If you watch EastEnders, England, England is basically London, Manchester, or Spain. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's it. But um, yeah, okay. So then th- th- there's that side of it uh, of the film as well. But um, it, it's actually quite a good film. I was surprised. Mm. It's quite a good film. I think Ronan is very good as the character Daisy. She starts off a little bit lightweight, a bit typically, you know, miserable and angsty, a bit like a female version of um, Kevin from Kevin and Perry. She plays this American and she's got this accent and she's a bit of an she's got a bit of an attitude and she doesn't really want to be there. So yeah, you think okay, well this is just a very standard character and perhaps the plot's going to be a bit more interesting. But it, she does develop as the thing goes along. She's got a bit of OCD, so she's got a little quirk to her. She's a bit withdrawn. Uh, quite defensive when she's questioned over anything that's personal. Um, well, pretty much over everything, really. She just, just seems to be quite um, on the defensive about a lot of the things. Um, but yeah, over the course of, of the runtime, her character, it does quite gradually build into something a little bit more complex than that. And it's done reasonably well. It's done in a, a quite a natural way, um, to say that. George McKay is the love interest and the eldest of the cousins. Yes, both things. Um, and it's yeah, that side of the story is very mushy and it is very aimed at teenagers who are into that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's that's part of it, which seems to be because she's been in quite a lot of films like The Host. I think she was in. Mm. She was in Byzantium. Yeah. That side of it, I get the impression it was meant for those, that audience. They're trying to capture mm. those people. Bear in mind, it's still quite a, a sort of indie, indie-ish, British film. Because mm. you know? well, it's... it's... The guy did the Last King of Scotland, isn't it, Kevin yeah, Macdonald? Yeah, yeah. So he's, you know, he's quite a, an interesting choice for him. It is, yeah. It's very strange. Um, yeah, but anyway, they, her and her boyfriend have got this weird. It's not a telepathic power. You can't, you don't know whether the the. Did I say husband? It's a boyfriend. Sorry, George McKay. You did say boyfriend. I oh, did say yeah. boyfriend. Okay. Well, yeah. you don't really know whether he's <laughs> got these right. actual. Tele- <laughs> telepathic powers. You don't know whether he's talking to her through his mind, whether he can right. read people's minds, and whether he talks to animals and stuff like that. You don't really know. It's implied, but then it's also implied that you could just... I mean, it just could just be because they're so in love with each other, and isn't it amazing? Um, but it's very, also yeah, very funny. Things. I mean, you can end up with six fingers. Maybe you could also end up with the left. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. But um, there's... A guy in the supporting cast called Tom Holland, who I've not really seen any, in anything else before. Mm. Apparently he was in The Impossible. Which yeah, I he was very good in that. He's, yeah. he's very good in this, actually. Okay, he's got oh, quite good. a lot of natural humour about him, and he sort of lights up the screen when he's on it, and he does it. He does his bit to light in the film as well, quite early on, and stop it being dragged down in this mopey teenage drama. Um so yeah, he's quite good. It might be a bit mean for me to say that um, Harley Bird, who plays the youngest of the cousins... Uh, called Piper uh, that she was annoying because mm. she is just being a little kid in a world where she's she can't find a mom and her brothers and there's a threat of being killed by these fascist nutters all over the place and you know it, it's in this almost post-apocalyptic English countryside so she just does what she's you would expect any young girl to do I guess and mm. um, so she does it as well as could be expected but her character does get a little bit um grating but um yeah overall it was like i say surprisingly enjoyable um there's a few scenes i'm really just going to quickly say that there's, there's one scene in particular which you do see in a trailer where um they're at a picnic okay and there's a large big cloud and some sort of ash or maybe snow or something that's falling from the sky and everyone sort of stands up and looks around and the dogs run off and the birds fly off that scene is brilliant 
really good. One of the best scenes for that kind of thing um, in this genre. And it's re- just really well done. Properly scary at times, this film. Mm. Properly scary oh, with that cool. kind of thing. So it's it's done fantastically well. Uh, it works a lot better with like, the shitty indie rock music over the top of it that's in the trailer as well. <laughs> that helps with like, the clangy guitars and whatever. I don't know, the bands in it. You know, the bands you get these days, the young bands with the guitars and such. Anyway. But as a whole, it's probably comparable to something like, um, as a film, something like Never Let Me Go, which admittedly was a lot mm. better. Shares a lot of the same similar feelings of, you know, impending doom and dread and there's a mystery and you don't really know what's quite happening all the way through. Um, it's a shame it gets a little bit peril of lovey towards the end, mm. um, but it is a lot darker than I was expecting. And it's interesting that Steve pointed out that it's, you know, sort of advertised on E4 and, and channels like that because... I was thinking long and hard about who the audience for this film is. It seems to have been aimed at a sort of... I don't want to say a female audience, but a sort of... The, the audience I mentioned with, for, like, The Host and Byzantium and Twilight and all those kind of films, it's not, though. It's probably more for people who are fans of um, TV shows like Misfits or Being Human, but it's a lot darker than they are. Um less humour to it as well. It's Some of it's harrowing, properly harrowing, so it's not really for people who don't like tense films. But at the same time, the love story that goes through it, it runs all the way through, makes it very cheesy at times, which lets it down. But overall, a good film. Okay. Um, no, it did look, did look interesting to me. Someone who likes kind of that genre of film. Not teen emo romance but post-apocalyptic <laughs> end of the world kind of stuff um, yeah but it's I'll... really well made it's a good story it's a really good story so yeah you probably would like it actually steve i think um uh, anyway my review is a documentary and everyone's probably thinking steve what's a documentary and it's not about sport what's going on here well <laughs> i do watch documentaries from time to time so get over it listeners um <laughs> This one is called The Great Hip Hop Hoax, produced and directed by Jeannie Finley. Um, it is a very interesting story. It's about um, two friends, um, Billy and Gavin, who are from Dundee in Scotland, uh, and they want to become rappers. Um, they answer an advert basically saying, Are you the next Eminem? They go down to London for an audition, get laughed out, basically derided as. Uh, quote here, the, the uh, rapping proclaimers. Um, so, they, they, so ba- and you know, basically put off by saying rappers don't come from Scotland. So what they do is they take on a fake persona. They basically pretend to be from California um, and reinvent themselves as uh, Syllable and Brains, a, a rap duo from California. <laughs> and the, fil- the film basically looks at... Um, so basically, they end up living as these two characters pretty much 24-7. The film takes a lot of footage that they filmed themselves. It's from about 2000, I think, 2002. So they filmed a lot of it themselves, what was going on with their lives and everything. Their, their bid to make it as, as rappers and under these personas. And the film really looks at two aspects. Whether they could trick the music industry and kind of the strain that living a lie 24-7 kind of had on their friendship and on their lives um, basically they pulled it off no one really questioned their dodgy accents and everything because they were both 
really charismatic and the music wasn't bad either to be honest i mean listening to it, it's not the best but it's not it's not mm. terrible and, and they pulled it off they got signed to sony um <laughs> for two two singles and an album they <laughs> went they went to the brit awards they partied with green day they partied with muse they they um went on tour with eminem and performed before d12 which you know well d12 is eminem's <laughs> rap group you know pretty big deal yeah, and they were doing um, amazingly. They were pulling it off, <coughs> and it, it all. Uh, I think there was some kind of takeover at Sony, and a lot of people lost their jobs. So it kind of fell down around them then. But right up until they admitted it, nobody picked up on the lie. Um, but one of them, I think it was Billy. Um, he had a wife back at home. She started having a kid, and they and he started to need to pull in kind of real money from it, and it wasn't really going anywhere in the end. Um, and I think their friendship ended up bearing the brunt of it but basically yeah it's quite interesting to see how they managed to dupe big time record labels record executives you know high profile people and pull it off and you know managed to basically blag money to make an hour money to go partying partying with massive celebrities it's just it, it, it talks to both of them and the people around them and record executives, and the, probably the most telling quote from the whole thing, I mean, it still obviously won't spoil too much, but right at the end, you get this this record executive person said, they they misunderstood the fact that they didn't need to pretend to be American to make it. They would have made it on the quality of their music and their personalities alone. You think, well, no, they wouldn't, because they went to an yeah. audition and laughed out of it. <laughs> so you're talking shit, the stuff, you know... <laughs> You are still talking shit now when pretty much the premise of the documentary yeah. was we can't make it as ourselves. We need to be pretend to be someone else. But, you know, they, 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 they made it onto like MTV with, um, some show called Total Request Live and basically took the mick out of Dave Berry for 10 minutes, <laughs> which is, you know, always worth doing. But, um, yeah, it's been, it's been quite widely publicized work. It's available now. It was, did get a cinematic release, a limited one. It's now available on iTunes, Blinkbox, and BBC iPlayer um, under Storyville, um, that series of documentary. Um, but I think yeah, the, the worst thing about it is obviously it pretty much ended a friendship. But at the end of it, you kind of it kind of makes you say, well, which of the two are happier now? You've got Billy, who now works on an oil rig, but he's got a wife and a couple of kids, and he seems quite happy. Or you've got Gavin, who seems to be still chasing this fame, but absolutely getting nowhere 10 years on. And it kind of you know, mm. which, which one would you rather be, essentially, at the end? It kind of leaves you making your mind up there. That's interesting. I mean, from the description, it sounds like it would be more of um, a satire of the actual music business. Uh, well, uh, it, it's I... kind of, it's not, it's not really a satire. It's kind of half and half. Half of it kind of looks at how easily they managed to dupe the record business, the music business, and how they managed to get kind of what fame and notoriety they had but the other half kind of looked because they were live like 24 7 every time they were out i think the only time i think it was billy didn't speak an american accent was when he was in private or on the phone in private to his girlfriend everywhere else they are acting as these characters when they were awake they were acting as these characters they couldn't let it slip i think there was in the in a documentary one of them they were at the brit awards and they were drinking with daniel beddingfield for some reason <laughs> In 10 years, wow. he, he was big back. But anyway, you know, he was, and he said sort of something like, well, where are you from? 
and he said, oh, from California. And he said, I thought you were from Scotland. And he thinks that he's bollocks the whole... He thinks he's got absolutely smashed. Started speaking in his Scottish <laughs> accent, absolutely bollocks the whole thing up for him. But, I mean, you know, don't, luckily I get away with it. But, um... Bedingfield never seemed the sharpest tool in the box, to be honest. No. <laughs> but, you know, it's, like they, they lived as not themselves mm. every waking minute while this was going on to, to fool these people. And that and the fact that, you know, when obviously there was a point where it wasn't going quite the way they wanted, their friendship fell apart. And they were best friends. They were, li- you know, literally the best of friends. And it ended up, you know, there's pictures of them together at a premiere for this, but by all accounts, it's kind of wrecked their friendship. Yeah. Well, that seems really interesting, Steve. Oh, I'm definitely going to give that a watch. I'll, I'll find, I'll dig that out on iPlayer. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a watch, and it's very, it's very interesting. I mean, I don't think you could pull it off now with social media being obviously it's ten years on or so. Mm. Social media now, I don't think you'd be able to get away with that. Somebody was. No, it's yeah. them on Facebook or something. Go, no, I know them from Dundee. They're having you on, but yeah, you know they were they were in a time where they could pull it off, and they and they did, and it's quite yeah, amazing that they actually managed it. Do you, do you think the record companies would actually care though, as long as they could still market it and make some money? See, that's the um, way that I would have assumed the documentary would yeah. end up going. It, um, by by the sounds of it, the record companies just kind of laughed it off, but that was because. They were still put. They were still kind of until Billy left, and they didn't want to take Gavin on as a solo kind of artist. They were still meeting, even though they were getting shitloads of money, and ended up pissing it up the wall basically. By looks at it, they were still producing the music. So if they mm. got found out, they probably wouldn't have cared then. I mean, if they were just fucking about with the money and weren't making the music, and then they got found out, then yeah, there probably would have been some quite you mm. know serious ramifications. But judging by the way the music industry is. Providing they were putting the music out, I don't think they really would have cared. Um, but obviously, living a living a lie twenty four seven is a bit of a yeah, mm. emotionally draining, I imagine. Hmm. Um, well, so, what new releases have we got to review next week, uh, James? Uh, next week we are looking at uh, Captain Phillips, uh, which Owen's already mentioned today, and we, you know more of us will have seen it. We'll talk about Captain Phillips, and hopefully, although I'm struggling to find a showing near me at the moment, uh, the Escape Plan <laughs> featuring Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so yeah, that's at least two of the films, and we'll see what else is about. Who knows? Clearly, uh, with a chance of Meatballs too, is there, isn't it? Oh, is it? I've still not even seen the first one. No? Although I noticed a poster today that said from the studio that bought you the Smurfs and Hotel Transylvania. And I did just think, why not just go from the studio that bought you Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Because people like that. <laughs> they didn't yeah. like those other ones that you're talking about. <laughs> but I've heard good things about the original. I've just not got around it's, to seeing yeah, it Yeah, it's yet. quite funny. It's all right. Yeah. Okay. Um, we'll be back in a minute with our um, recommendations. So our recommendations for this week, what's watched on television, uh, Friday night, there is actually quite a lot of good uh, choices if you're staying in on Friday night, if you've no social life and all that. Uh, five <laughs> past midnight uh, on ITV4 is Blazing Saddles. Uh, 
then you have got uh, Lethal Weapon at 9 o'clock on, nice. uh, on 5 Star. Uh, on Film 4 at 9 o'clock, you're at Saving Private Ryan. And ITV 2 at 10 o'clock at the Born Identity. So get your Sky Plus, other TV recording devices are available. And watch a lot of good films on Friday. Uh, Owen, I believe you've also got one from Friday night. I do, yeah. It's a good day for TV, I think. It's um, afternoon more, but anyway. It's m- yeah, more more late afternoon, really. Yeah, True Grit, the original 1969 film by uh, well, starring John Wayne as Rooster Cogburn. Uh, that's my pick. I talked about it quite a lot on the podcast, so I'm not going to go over that already. But um, yeah, brilliant film. It's on Film 4 at 20 past four. Um, Jay, your recommendation is... My recommendation next Monday there is a Blu-ray. I'll get it's very brief. I'll give. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Give you two, one for film fans and one for um, music fans because the film fans, the um, 35th anniversary steel box uh, Blu-ray of Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, is released on, on Blu-ray on Monday. That's one for your film and your horror fans. The other one is Morrissey, uh, 25 Live. Uh, I love a good concert film. Uh, I've spoken about concert films on here before. Uh, this is the latest concert film, first in nine years from Morrissey. And it's actually it's filmed at a high school, uh, which is a really, it's a really quite an intimate one uh, for an artist of his stature, uh, celebrating 25 years as a solo artist. Apparently, it's an absolutely fantastic uh, concert film in terms of Great editing, great footage, um, very interesting for anyone who likes that kind of thing. So that's my recommendation. Morrissey Live 25. Excellent. Uh, I think that's all for this week's podcast then. Uh, thanks to everyone who has listened and contributed. Um, we'll be back next week, um, roughly the same time I expect, with um, the usual thing, reviews of various films, new releases, and what we've been watching. Um, Again, thanks for joining us, and join us next week. The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman, and Owen Hughes, with original music provided by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics, and on Twitter at at failedcritics. He's also a fan of uh, West Ham United, and I would have got onto the fantastic Green Street. Oh, Green Street, yeah. Or as it's called in America, Green Street Hooligans. <laughs> <laughs>
Nice. Green Street 3 is out next week. That is not one of my recommendations. I'm going to watch it so I've seen all of the trilogy and I'll be reviewing that for you next week. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can watch it without paying any money. Yeah. You keep making all these promises, Steve. Yeah. You never fulfil on them, so I'm really going to expect you to to get hold of this. Which ones haven't I fulfilled? There was the promise to watch, was it five films in a week? You were going to watch five films for us and talk about them I never said which week, did I? <laughs> I suppose. Like, yeah. cunning like a fox. <laughs> uh-huh. yes, I'm, like, yeah. I'm like Baldrick with a brain. Anyway, news time. And James and Owen both have some news for us. Uh, James, why don't you start off with yours? Yeah, well, mine's not hugely news. Um, it's just to let us know that the London Film Festival is up and running. We've had the gala premiere of Captain Phillips. Uh, we've also had a big um, big screening of Gravity as well. We, unfortunately, none of us here uh, live in London, can get down to London, but luckily we have a new contributor to Fail Critics, um, Carol Petz, who is down in London Film Festival. She's already written a diary for, uh, for us on failcritics.com. She's got a review of Gravity, um, an overview of An Evening with Clint Mansell, the um, film scorer. And hopefully we'll be able to persuade Carol to come on the podcast next week to tell us all about her London Film Festival Not a adventures. real-life woman. Yeah, I calm yourself, Steve. I can't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd expand our demographic by saying I, Owen, Owen sorted all this out and I've just swooped in and gone, yeah, do it. I'm like Rupert Murdoch. I just saw that she was going to London Film Festival and I was like, oh, right, let's start yeah. tweeting you and try and uh, coax you into <laughs> doing some work for us. Owen tweeting women, trying to coax them into things. Yes, it's never going to end. Well. If comes on the podcast, you two have to calm down your rampant home, um, uh, sexism and misogyny. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Me, me and Owen are the ones on the podcast. Ism was quite important misogyny. on that word then. Yes, I've got the wrong word stuck in my head then. And yeah. But you need to cut that out as well. What I was going to say, <laughs> stop it. What's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Yeah. Um, That's our news, was it? <laughs> uh, uh, we, and Owen's got a bit of news yes, for us Owen's as well. Got some news. Uh, yeah, I do have a little bit of news, which I thought was quite exciting. I'm not really a fan of Doctor Who, but it's been announced this week that uh, the director, Ben Wheatley, is going to direct the first few episodes with Peter Capaldi on board as the new Doctor, which I thought was quite exciting. Uh, I quite like Ben Wheatley. I, lo- I like his films uh, that I've seen. I think I've seen all of his speech films, but I think he did a few shorts. Uh, he also he has got ex- a little bit of experience with TV. Started out on... Um, actually, I'm not sure what he started out on, but I did. Uh, the first time I saw any of his work was on the TV show Ideal, mm. starring Johnny okay. Vegas as the Mancunian drug-dealing... Mm-hmm. flat living loser basically and it was really good very dark and quite funny not as adult as perhaps some of his films have, have tended to be you know quite shockingly disturbingly violent some of them um so it'd be an interesting take on doctor who stories i'm sure whatever he does but um yeah i mean as i say i'm not really a fan of doctor who but i might actually be tempted to give it a go since it's got one of my favorite british tv actors in it and directed by one of my favorite currently working British directors, so yeah, it'd be, like I said, be That's interesting. Good. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, it is, it is 
does feel like quite a big way to launch the new Doctor, which is um, which is important, I think, because there are, there is this kind of sense that possibly Capaldi could be overshadowed by the 50th anniversary mm. show out next month. So I'm, I'm really, really pleased. I'm, I'm, do you know what? Fair play to the BBC for just sticking their neck out and actually going, A, going after someone like Ben Wheatley and following through and giving him a couple of episodes. I, I, I'm, I've got quite high hopes of that. So uh, it, it should certainly, whatever you think of Wheatley's stuff, he's certainly not boring. Uh, he also so hopefully the Go Compare advert. Oh, he what? did, yeah. Oh, <laughs> really? So yeah. that's um, yeah. interesting. Yeah, he's, he's got a... Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming he was just a director looking for work then, to be fair. They're quite recent, some of these adverts. He's done a yeah. lot of TV adverts, but a lot of film directors have as well. Jonathan Glazer made his name originally in yeah. adverts. So, yeah, I know. Uh, you know. um, Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott George made Romero did adverts. as well. That's who he started. Yeah, exactly. And then he started so taking really... on commercialism with his, uh, <laughs> yeah. his films. So. But, um, but, yeah, like like I said, though, I think he'll, he's an interesting director and yeah. it, it it definitely won't be boring at the very least uh, and that's all for the news and after a break me and Owen will fall out uh, for what we've been watching this week James will kick us off and what have you watched this week James okay uh, I'm gonna talk about a film which I still don't quite know how to judge formulate uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm surprised it took me so long to watch. Actually, I, 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 this week I watched for the first time Crank High Voltage or Crank Two, uh, depending on, on. I don't know where it was released or something like that. Basically, it's the 2009 follow-up to the 2006 film, which I think we've I think we've spoken about Crank on here before. It is a ridiculous um, action film, but actually a very enjoyable one. Um, the the plot of which is basically speed in a man. Uh, you know, if he goes below fifty, he dies. Um, in Crank High Voltage, at the, well, at the end of Crank, I'm, I'm sure it's not. I'm, I don't like to spoil things, but basically, at the end of Crank, he's kind. Is he dead? Is he not? There's a bit of a whoa, and then starts Crank Two, straight away, straight in, um, continues almost seamlessly from the first film and this time instead of having to get his adrenaline going because of a Chinese poison um, a Chinese mobster has stolen the indestructible Chev Chelios heart um, and replaced it with a battery powered heart that requires regular bounce, uh, regular jolts of electricity and is this scientific power accurate yeah I believe so uh, I believe um, this is near documentary level realism. Um, it just sounds oh, stupid otherwise. If they haven't done their research, it sounds... Uh, yeah, exactly. Bad. Yeah, no, I, I, I can't imagine they wouldn't it's, have done their it's research. It's watertight. Like there is no no flaws in any of their science. No, not so. Including, including a moment where at some point it's just revealed to us that, oh, actually friction will do the job. And so Jason Statham returning as Chev Chelios just rubs himself up and down against an old woman uh, a track, a uh, horse racing track. One of the... Uh, basically, I put it on, and my wife walked in, and she, she saw, like, two minutes of it and went, is this a dream sequence? <laughs> and I went, nope, 
the entire film has been like this. It is one of the weirdest experiences of watching a film I've had. Um, weird, for me, this was weirder than Holy Motors. Holy Motors last year seemed to have more internal logic than anything that goes on in Crank High Voltage. Honestly. <laughs> I I I was struggling. There are biz- bizarre acting performances. Jason Statham is brilliant as the as Chev Chelios, one of my favourite named characters of all time. Um, he he does his Jason Statham thing and it's great and it's fun. Um, but most of the other characters in this seem to be kind of from amateur dramatics. In and you know, it, there's a there's this weird prostitute that keeps just pulling a a Vogue-esque pose that she says something to him. Um, there are... What I will say... There, there are kind of Mexican Maori men cutting off their own nipples at times. There, this film is... It's messed me up. In the same way that Owen didn't quite know what he felt about Michael Haneke's Hidden, or Cachet, um, I, I feel exactly the same about Crank 2. I still don't quite know what I've watched. Probably the only time those two films will ever be compared... I, I completely agree. Uh, it's, you have, it, it you have mentioned just... Hidden and Holy Motors in the same review of Crank 2. I know. <laughs> and this this is what's really messing my head. Well, I, I think ultimately, if this is the kind of movie I always thought Roger Corman would still be making. It's, it, it's spirit. The, um, is that of Death Race 2000. Um, the... Uh, David Carradine film, where David Carradine is, plays a man in a black gimp mask for no apparent reason, driving. Sylvester Stallone is some weird machine gunning. Uh, that's a really weird film. This is this is its spiritual successor. Uh, loads of I, I love bits of it. Bits of it are absolute genius. The opening credits in kind of eight bit computer graphics were great fun. Um, there are some great fight scenes in it. And then some bits of it are some of the worst things I've ever seen committed to film. And it just doesn't care. It do, I, I honestly don't... When they were making it, it was like they honestly didn't look beyond what they were doing on set. They, hadn't, they didn't give a shit what anyone else was going to think about this because they were just coming up with weird ideas and then going, right, yeah, let's film that then. It's visually really interesting. It's very dynamic. Um, and it's it's certainly never boring. But it's... It takes the the homophobia, the misogyny, the racism to new bizarre levels where it just keeps battering you with offensive idea after offensive image that you just get battered into submission and go, maybe maybe some of this is funny. I don't know anymore. It's hurting my head. Please make it stop, but I can't turn it off. Um, I I'd really... It's one of those films, I'm really glad I've seen it, but it is one of those films that almost just defies reviewing in a sense because, and, and I don't want to make it more important than it really is, it's, it's exploitation fluff, um, but it is just carried off with so much confidence that that almost gives it some kind of level of importance. Um, I think I think the key to it must be the fact that Jason Statham is just a fantastic heart to build this um, film around because the other films that uh, Neville Dean and um, 
Taylor have done, who are the writers and directors, are Gamer, which I've heard, I've not seen, but I've heard very, very bad things about. Um, Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance. And they're currently doing, yeah, yeah, and, you know, not even Nick Cage can save that. And they're currently doing the Vatican, they're in post-production on what looks like to be yet another Vatican-based exorcism <laughs> fucking horror film called The Vatican Tapes with Dougray Scott in. Um, I, I, part, part of me just wants them to just make a crank film every year. I, I would, I would watch it. It's, it, it has that kind of, it really has that punk anarchic. Um, exploitation vibe of the 70s and I don't think anyone makes films quite like that um, so in that sense I suppose it works, it's not as good as the original Crank but it's it's more mental mm. um, and it's it's almost a, a series of skits rather than a, a kind of coherent film but bits of it are some of the best, some of my favourite bits of a film I've seen all year. So I, I really don't know how to explain it. But if you've not seen it and you enjoyed Crank, it's worth a watch. If you if you watched Crank and went, well, this is ridiculous. Just stay well clear of this. This this will this will hurt you in so many ways. So yeah, that's that's what I kind of think of Crank too. Silence. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those films, though. I think the first one is, is, in a way, brilliant. It, I mean, it mm. properly it sits in the, the genre of action film, but it's completely exploiting every aspect of action films to the point that when you're watching it, it's just so exhilarating and fun mm. and, and funny as well as fun. Um, mm. To watch Crank... High voltage. I found was just kind of the same thing repeated, the same formula repeated, um, but with different and perhaps more wacky and zany things to mm. it. Um, which is like what... the scene where there's just porn stars on strike shouting at Chev Chelios, and you've got Ron Jeremy, yeah, and Jenna Hayes shout, and there, there's no sense to it. No, he, he's just, that that would. There's too many moments like that where you go. You just wanted to have some porn stars on strike. That was your joke, mm. was that porn stars might go on strike. That was your joke. It makes no sense to this film. No. But and that's the problem. You've got to give it credit for having the balls to just do all of this stuff, you know? Oh, exactly. I, and I'm glad that... I, I am glad that, in a way, it's really nice to see someone working in film that seems to have no internal sensor. No. I, if, if, you know, they, they literally put everything they think of on screen yeah, which, and they don't Which some works yeah. and some doesn't because there are yeah. parts of Crank High Voltage which I... There's some... Like you've mentioned it already with the old lady. It's very... Can I complain about it being very sexist and misogynistic when it's that kind of film? Some of it felt a bit exploitative. Yeah, and the fact is, pretty much the only two speaking parts for women in the film are a prostitute and a stripper. It's kind of Um, making it they don't really have a place in this kind of film, unless they're... And I was thinking, I'm watching it thinking that, thinking that's actually making me really uncomfortable. But then you see a Mexican gang boss make one of his underlings cut off his own nipples. And there's not a woman in sight there. And you think, they just seem to hate everyone. Actually. Yeah, that's, that's a saving grace. I think it's just, it's indiscriminate. It's, um, yeah. you know, discrimination. <laughs> <I suppose>. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Owen, uh, what did you watch? 
Um, I watched. I, I'm very, very, very briefly going to mention it because I'm waiting for you guys to see it first before we can have a proper discussion. I saw a preview of Captain Phillips on Monday. I'm not saying anything about it. I'm not going to give a, re- a review. As you know, I'll just say that yeah, Tom Hanks is pretty good. I thought Tom Hanks was pretty good. The Somali pirates, all four of them, just as good, if not maybe better, um, in this film. Very interesting. So yeah, I'll wait to see what you guys see. Uh, to wait till you, till you guys have seen it before we, mm-hmm. we talk anymore. More, more, more interesting now the true, true story has been revealed. It's a true, true story, yeah. Uh, <laughs> see, I had this problem. I read about the true, true story um, before I went to see the film and I thought oh, I, shouldn't, I should have waited because it basically makes it Captain Phillips is different in real life to how he is in the film um, in a rather negative way. But no. I'm gonna like I say I'll wait till you guys have seen it before we talk about that because it's 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 worth us ha- having an in-depth discussion about that again. Yeah. I think all I'd say is I just just for me very very I've not seen it yet. I I hadn't. It was only recently I found out it was based on a tr- on a specific true story. I thought it was just kind of inspired by the fact that lots of these boats have been done. So it's not for me. It's as someone going to watch it. Argo, for example was very specifically based on a true story, which had a lot of bits and pieces changed, some big, some small, and things like that. Whereas, I'll be honest, me going to watch this, I'm not too bothered about accuracy, because what I want to see is some kind of Somali pirate hijacking film. Well, it's, that, I mean, that. it's based on a true story in so much as it's... You want to see Die Hard on a boat, don't you? I, that is an idea. Like Paul Greengrass, see, yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, haven't we already? Ha- it hasn't. Didn't Van Damme do one of those or Seagal? Yeah, it was it on Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But um, two was on a train, I think. Yeah. I mean, this is based on a true story in so much as it's Captain Phillips' version of the true story. Right. Okay, you know? yeah. So uh, they may have changed some of his story to reflect the actual. Yeah. You know, make it into a more of a, um, an interesting kind of film. Um, but there are people who were paid off to not say anything about what actually went down, who come out anonymously recently and said, no, oh, it's different, it's very different. So very I, yeah, I really didn't want to spend <laughs> too long yeah. talking about anyway. it because it just yeah. feels like we're having a very fragmented conversation. So I'm, I'll move straight on to what I have seen this week and what I am going to review. Um, I watched uh, Ip Man, or Yip Man, I think it's called Yip Man, actually. It's spelled Ip Man, I-P Man. It's by a director called Wilson Yip, with a Y. Um, who I actually watched Yip Man this week because a friend of mine called Martin who follows the podcast but is not on Twitter he just sends me messages on Facebook he um, pointed me in the direction of a Donnie Yen film hi Martin um, sorry just yeah, hello, Martin. say hi to him <laughs> of a Wilson Yip film sorry um, called Bio Zombie which I'd never heard of which is this Cantonese version of um Dawn of the Dead, almost, set inside of a shopping centre, and it's kind of a goofy comedy that's quite a black comedy and features flesh-eating zombies, so it sounded very interesting. It launched the career of Wilson Yip, and it's this huge, like, cult film in Hong Kong and China, so that's one for me to check out, but I figured, as it's by the same director, and I've got Yip Man and Yip Man 2 sitting on my Sky Planner since about a year ago, I thought I'd get around to watching at least one of them, so I started on that. It's a sort of biographical story of uh, the guy called Yip Man, unsurprisingly, who is a martial arts master, perhaps one of the greatest martial arts masters um, who we've got records of. 
who taught martial arts in Hong Kong just before the outbreak of... Um, no, no. See, this is me working without any notes. It's in. It's the Second World War. I'm pretty sure it was the Second World War. <laughs> so it starts off. The first half of the film is all about him um, with his uh, little. Uh, he's got his his wife and his his son, and there's a business partner who's just setting up a business and he's helping out. And there's some guys who come to this this village, and they all in in South China. This is based, and they challenge all the kung fu masters in the village to fight so it's a very simple typical almost martial arts film um then what happens is you have the outbreak of second world war you have the japanese invasion of china um and it, the screen fades to black it explains what's happened and it comes back on again and the streets are war-torn um people are being um made to you know scrap for work trying to find whatever food and, and money they can get from doing whatever jobs they can get hold of mostly we see people working in a cotton mill you see all these people who were sort of grandmasters who are now um working in a mine digging coal um basically doing all these terrible jobs for the japanese and it then becomes a story of this of yip man who defies them um he stands up for what he believes is right. And it's, like I say, it's, it's basically a, a, a biographical story because he's a real man. This is the guy who mm. um, who did stand up to the Japanese and it's his one-man rebellion and how it influenced the whole nation of China to stand up for themselves. Um, in many respects, have you seen the, the Jet Li film Fearless? I think Fearless is probably a more well-known film just because it's got Jet Li in it. Um, no, I haven't. No. Okay, that deals with a different martial arts master, but it's very much the same sort of thing where they use their um, their skills, their knowledge, their wisdom, if you like, to uh, stand up to their oppressors, and it's how about it's about how they can change the world around them. And I think it's a very interesting film. It stars uh, a guy called Donnie Yen, who I haven't seen in anything else, but he's uh, a really good actor. Actually, he plays Yip Man. Um, very charismatic in this. I mean, for a guy who uh, is known for just everyone around him just worships him. He's just a very cool man. Never loses, um, loses never loses his cool, and he's just such a great actor. It's really hard to explain his performance because he's very understated in his role. There are times where he gets quite animated, um, which is very rare, and it take, you, you get the sense that it probably did take quite a lot to annoy him, and it put him under a lot of pressure to um to get to the stage he gets at in this film um but you also get the sense of the real man that he's portraying um and and, and yeah it's like I say fantastic performance from him i've yet to see the sequel which i've heard is actually not quite as good as yet man but as a martial arts film it's very good as a biography it's very good as well and as a sort of war drama i think it, it's quite good so it sort of ticks a lot of boxes and maybe doesn't quite get into the territory where it's one of the best of its genre in any of those genres but at the same time it's it's very enjoyable very well made some of the shots in it are brilliant especially of um of their village just after the the breakout of the world war and you it, it does become a very personal film you can feel um so yeah very interesting and like i say the the don the guy who donnie yen plays it man he's a real person he's probably most well known for and it's plastered across all the posters and every review you see of this. He's the guy who trained Bruce Lee. So 
he becomes the guy who Bruce Lee learns from okay. and stuff. So you go through the process of this of watching this film. You never get to the point in this film of that stage in his life where he's this martial arts master who trains people. He doesn't have any apprentices or anything like that. So it's all about his early life. But yeah, very interesting to note, I think, because um, it's just a very larger-than-life character. So it's quite an inspiring story. So yeah, very glad that I watched it. A lot of people have recommended it. I think Duke recommended it to me a long time ago on Twitter, at Duke. Um, so yeah, picking up from there as well. Worth a watch, especially if you like martial arts movies. Okay. Um, so Owen, this is where me and you are going to fall out. Yeah, bring it on then, Steve. Let's see where I, you're going with this. I'm assuming, anyway. Um, the film that I watched this week, I'm going to talk about. Actually, briefly, before I start, Walking Dead started season four. In America, it's on UK TV Friday night. Won't uh, say too much, but it started pretty solidly. So if you're a fan of that, it's starting in good in good fashion. Um, I think it's on FX on Friday night. If you don't know how to acquire it from America, um, pre- oh, yeah, before then. Uh, anyway, yeah. So I watched Evil Dead Two, and right, <laughs> um, mm. I did not like it. Oh. What the hell's wrong with you? Have you seen it before? Is that your first time watching it? It's the first time I can remember watching it. I've seen the first one, and I like the first right. one a lot. Right. Yeah, the first okay. the first one's very good. It's it's got you know some actually quite creepy moments in it, but it's also quite funny, and the effects are quite good, and if you know the the characters are quite good. In in this one, Evil Dead Two, um, carries on where the first film left off. Um, Ash is at the cabin out in the woods. Um, he gets possessed. He gets um, possessed. Then the professor's daughter is looking into the book of dead, turns up some other people and all the basically evil stuff that happened. In the first film happens in this one to all the people. And the, it just feels like a parody of the first film to me. It just um, feels kind of, um, a mix tape, like a pretty shoddy mix. There's never felt like there was any kind of creepy moments in it. The, the humour was done badly. I think there was too much slapstick in it, which was just a bit rubber. The effects didn't have the same, you know, they're pretty much the same kind of special effects or effects, whatever, makeup, puppets, whatever. Didn't have the same effect on me. Um, the characters generally, Asher, I liked in the first one, just irritated me in this one for the most part. It just seemed a bit silly, compared, which seems a bit stupid thing to say based on the premise of the film and the first film. But it's, it just seemed like a parody of Evil, the, the original Evil Dead. Either like someone had remade it or someone had made kind of a, a spoof version of it. Yeah. Well, I don't think that that's, you know, you're not the only person who's had that problem with it. I think a lot of people found that they didn't know what it was. <laughs> Is it a remake? Is it a sequel? It's kind of, I think, both. Um, in so much as it was the film that Sam Raimi, I think... He finally got a budget for the film he wanted to make, so just decided to do the same thing again, um, but bigger and better. And yeah, it is very slapstick, but I I kind of find that like it, it that's its charm. I think it, instead yeah. of being outright serious and perhaps looking a bit dated, like The Evil Dead possibly does to some people. Not to me. I think it's still a really good film. The Evil Dead. It's the problem for me. I can get over a film looking dated. It's, it just seems like an absolute parody of the first one, which was excellent. But it, it kind of is a parody. 
So to yeah, I don't know. I don't. I can't. <laughs> I, can't I can't understand how it could be a criticism of Evil Dead Two that it's a parody when it it sort of is a parody. Well, maybe maybe the me saying it's like a parody isn't a criticism. I just didn't like it. Yeah. No, okay. Yeah. I just I just didn't find it had anything that the first, the original film had. It, it was just trying to do that or trying to take the mick out of that and didn't work. Either way, whatever it was trying to do didn't work and it fell a bit flat for me. But then everyone else, by and large, seems to rate it. So yeah, I, I really, really like it. I, I do really like Evil Dead too. Perhaps, perhaps Evil Dead is the better film because some of the points you made they they are true. It is, it is very slapstick. Which, if you're not in the mood for it, will be quite annoying. I don't agree that Ash is uh, annoying in it for a start. That's what, that's your first problem, Steve. Ash is just not annoying. <laughs> He's one of the best horror film characters that you can have. One of the best heroes of a horror film, at least. Well, he doesn't seem very heroic in this one to me. He just seems like a bit of an oaf. <laughs> well, uh, I, I will give Army, Army of Darkness a try and see if the trilogy can redeem itself at my eyes. Yeah, so if you don't like the goofy slapstick in Evil Dead 2, you're probably not going to like yeah. Army of Darkness. Yeah, Army of Darkness is just... Army of Darkness is essentially a comedy. Yeah. But a good one. Yeah, but a very good one. Yeah. Um, I actually had... To... Evil Dead 2 actually scared me so much I had to turn it off. But the first time I watched it, uh, it was on VHS and uh, I was in the house on my own. And I actually, had, the moment that um, the hand mm. starts coming for him, I actually had to turn it off. I was like, I'm not going to sleep tonight after that. And it's weird because it is quite a funny, slapsticky film, but there was just something horribly creepy about that hand coming and the trapdoor thing as well you know chains across it and just constantly bumping and the voice that comes out of it and it's just that is I think that's really creepy and I think that's one of the things it improves on from the first film actually as well as some of the um, the gore in it I think it's much more like a director who's got a handle on how to do it properly in Evil Dead Mm 2 which maybe some people didn't like might have taken some of the shine off of, or added too much shine to what was already there in Evil Dead. But I, you know, I think they, it was done very masterfully. Uh, in my research for this, though, I and mean, I did see that Army of Darkness Two has been announced. Yeah, I really? don't know what that's going to be like because they've just done the Evil, or it's just called Evil Dead, the remake that yeah. came out this year, which I quite liked. It was good for uh, a remake, anyway, and a modern mm. horror. Um, but yeah, I don't don't see how they can do an Army of Darkness sequel or remake or that it's seems just, weird. Yeah. yeah, and modern horror sequels never seem to work. You know, Hills and Boys Two. Apparently, it's something to do with a post-credit scene in the remake of Evil Dead, which stars Bruce Campbell being Ash. Mm. Oh um, right. In the remake, so um, the post-credit scene. Actually... Is... I... If they're actually going to give Bruce Campbell a nice big role, though, I'll, I'm in. There you go. That's all I'm going <laughs> to yeah. He doesn't he does need more work. I mean, I have liked quite a lot of the stuff I've seen him in. He, he, I think he does all right out of um, public appearances and speaking tours and stuff like that. I've got a uh, book of his called If, if uh, Chins Could Kill, which is just a great book. Um, and... Yeah, I think he he does all right, well, which is good. Bubba Hotep was very good. 
Is he in Burnout? Is yeah. he is he a major part in that? He's is got it? A, yeah, recurring character in it. Yeah. Okay, oh, that's good. Called Sam Axe. Is it? I didn't like Burn Notice. It was just I've never watched really it. Cheesy spy dramery stuff. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, that's all for what we've been watching. Uh, after this break, we have got um, our reviews of some new releases, um, including the Fifth State. Uh, How I Live Now, and The Great Hip Hop Hoax. So, James, do you want to kick off our new releases? Yeah, okay, big release this week has been The the Fifth Estate, the thriller. Basically, it's a bit of a social network-esque tech thriller uh, about the, the rise of WikiLeaks and its founder, Julian Assange. It's Directed by Bill Condon, who I, I knew I knew the name, couldn't work out why. His m- most recent films have been the the last two Twilight films, um, which made me suddenly doubt a lot of things. Um, it stars Benedict Cumberbatch as Julian Assange and uh, Daniel Bruhl, who we've seen recently in Rush, um, as basically his co-founder. It, what I would say is actually a lot of the plot to this really does just follow the social network i don't know if it's because that's the best dramatic way to bring these um tech world stories to screen or if that's just what happens when people start up websites they eventually end up hating each other i'm not sure quite how um it's it's based on uh the book that daniel berg who is the daniel Bruhl character um wrote and another book as well also written by someone who's fallen out with julian assange and so you can kind of imagine where this film is coming from. Um, it's it's a competent, decent made thriller. Um, it's nothing amazing. Uh, the direction is at times lacklustre and too frenetic, uh, if that makes much sense. And sometimes it's just doing too much and it's trying to be, oh, look, this is about the Internet. So let's use some visual trickery because this is all high tech. Um, but you're essentially still just looking at two people hammering away at keyboards. You know, uh, it's it follows a period of three years, essentially, leading up to the WikiLeaks war logs uh, that they published alongside The Guardian, The New York Times and The Spiegel in Germany. Peter Capaldi gets to play Alan Rusbridger, The uh, Guardian editor gets a small part here. David Thewlis, um, really good to see him back on the big screen. He plays a Guardian uh, journalist who kind of cultivates WikiLeaks as the next big media organisation essentially. And so you see, and, and I think where the film works best is where you see the birth of WikiLeaks. You see the idealism of Julian Assange, and you see the kind of trickery, the fact that he's basically living out of a bag, his obsession, um, and that's where I think Benedict Cumberbatch's best work is making Julian Assange this actual this character that you can believe on screen. Because I think we've heard a lot about Julian Assange. Uh, we will have read lots of things about him and WikiLeaks, but what this it does humanise him. Uh, it does humanise him, and I think that's very important. Um, Daniel Bull's character is basically our proxy into the world of WikiLeaks. Um, he he becomes a real driving force behind the website, and 
a big part of the really good work that they do. And th- and this is where the politics of this film come in. You cannot watch this film in isolation. You can. Like I say, you can't. You can. You can watch this film as just a tech thriller in isolation away from the very real world situation going on with Assange and WikiLeaks and um, debates around privacy from government spies and things like that taking place in the world at the moment. And if you did that, it's a relatively competent thriller. What frustrated me about the film and what I didn't like about the film actually was that it does have a very clear agenda um, and that agenda is an establishment agenda. About, about two-thirds through the way f- uh, of the way through the film, Assange isn't eccentric but doing some good things. He's a passionate man, makes some bad mistakes, but he's doing some good things. He's uncovering corruption in Africa uh, and South America and places like that. And it's basically saying, look, he's a good man. The moment that it switches to a focus on um, the U.S., uh, war in Afghanistan and looking into what the US government are doing the film takes a very judgmental view of Assange and turns him into this despot on screen almost instantly um, and this ties in with earlier this week for some reason I don't know why we had to have the Prime Minister of this country talking to us about what Benedict Cumberbatch's performance in the Fifth Estate was like but for some reason, people saw fit to think that that was news, that David Cameron thought that Benedict Cumberbatch's performance was excellent and really captured Assange's twitchiness. And then he went on to talk about the good work that WikiLeaks had done in Africa, but in recent years they've been terribly naughty and they shouldn't have been looking at British and American stuff because we're not bad, but the Africans are. That, this, is, this is what happened. You watch this film and you start to actually think, I don't like what you're doing here. I don't like what you're saying here. This is part of a of a preset agenda. The fact is, the film's produced by DreamWorks, this huge multi-billion pound corporation, and you start to realise, yeah, they're not actually going to paint this small startup website which is devoted to exposing government corruption and trying to bring transparency. Whether you agree with their methods and things like that, Ultimately, a Hollywood studio was never going to go, isn't it great what WikiLeaks have been doing? And that just starts to really seep through the film. And towards the end of the film, it becomes really bogged down with this preachy, judgmental um, ideas about what, what WikiLeaks are about. And the key thing that really summed it up for me was it spent an inordinate amount of time on this Argo-esque um, story of an American source in Libya that had to escape to Egypt, spent about 20 minutes on the story of this person, which, for all intents and purposes, doesn't even exist. Um, as if to say, look, this is what could have happened if the information had fallen into the wrong hands. Um, so it's it's a far from even-handed approach to WikiLeaks, and it's not even that great. It's saving great. Daniel Brühl is good in it. I, I like Daniel Brühl a lot. Um, he was far, far better in Rush, far better used in Rush. The the saving grace of this film is Benedict Cumberbatch's performance, which is fantastic. And um, in a way, kind of reminiscent of uh, Bruno Ganz's perform, um, uh, performance as Hitler in Downfall, in the way that it humanises someone who has become 
a real bete noir for uh, modern media and things like that. Um, I'm not comparing Assange to Hitler. I just realised I did that, didn't mean to. Very, very different people. But you're looking at some the performance of someone, uh, a very talented actor, who is inhabiting his character. And that's the, the good thing about the film. Most of the rest of it is pretty average and at times a little distasteful. How's Cumberbatch's accent? So I've heard a t- Excellent. I've heard a few only little bits on the on trailers and things. And- yeah, oh, no, no, it's an excellent accent. And the thing is, because Assange himself isn't a traditional Australian, he he's he's a globe trotter. He's travelled around the world, so his accent has mutated. Um, and, and yeah, no, Cumberbatch. What I would say is. Um, Maybe, I don't know, maybe if you put them right up next to each other, you'd be able to go, actually, no, that doesn't work, that doesn't work. But it it's good enough to make you believe that he is Julian Assange. Which, and it, it reminds me a little bit, actually, of um, Michael Douglas playing uh, Liberace in uh, Behind the Candelabra. I don't, I don't actually know that. I know what Assange looks like, but I've not heard him talk that often. And I wouldn't be able to recall it. Um, but... Cumberbatch is so believable that that doesn't matter. So I don't know much about Assange, but Cumberbatch makes me believe he is Assange. And, and what what of Daniel Brawl? Is he going to be kind of what Christoph Waltz was and like kind of a, a foreign language or foreign uh, actor who kind of breaks into Hollywood mainstream think, American just through being brilliant? I think he's, well, he's young enough to actually get a few more leading man-type roles than Christopher. Christoph Waltz um, but I, I really hope it does lead to um, more success for him because I, I do really really like him as an I've actor I've not seen him in much I mean obviously he's been in the fifth estate he was Nicky Lauder in Rush he was in uh, Inglorious Bastard as well wasn't yeah. he with Christoph Waltz and, and one or two other things that I don't think I've seen yeah and he's been in quite a lot of German cinema and, and every time I've seen him there he has been absolutely brilliant. He's in the uh, Bader Meinhof complex, I think. Oh, it's long, a while since I've seen that. He's in Goodbye Lenin. Um, he's in The Educators. Um, he's he's a very very good actor. Like I say, I don't think in this he's used particularly brilliantly. He he does a very good job, um, but his character's a little bit boring. I'll be honest. Considering it's the character who basically wrote the book that the film is based on, he's a bit of a boring character. Um, but he 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 does very well with this. No, I do, I do hope that we'll see a lot more of Daniel Bruhl uh, on our screens, as well as also doing some some great German cinema as well. Uh, Owen, uh, tell us about How I Live Now then. Okay, right. Yes, How I Live Now. It's a dystopian British film by a British director called Kevin MacDonald, starring Saoirse Ronan. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. I have checked it that's on, very good. on Wikipedia. Yeah, Saoirse Ronan, not Suarez or Saoirse or whatever it is. Um, as an American teenager who's sent to live with her aunt and cousins uh, in the British countryside on the eve of World War Three, just before it's about to break out. You get the sense as she's arriving at the airport that something big is happening. Um, but being a typical teenager, she's just got headphones in, not paying attention to the news. She's just Listening a bit missed. Reaper and all that shit. YOLO. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's just a bit missed that she's been um, sent away by her dad, as she sees it, um, because her, apparently you find out later on um, he's had a baby, a new baby, and it's just that oh, she's just now being ignored. 
what you see from the trailer for the film is that she meets a boy there um, and she falls in love with this boy and then they get separated and it's all about the journey for these two lovers getting back to each other. It does look, from the trailer, admittedly, like a typical teen lift adaptation uh, with these star-crossed emo lovers finding their way back to each other with tons of cheesy romance in it. And, um, yeah, I mean, even despite my love of most dystopian fiction and noting that it was actually rated a 15, which is unusually high for this type of thing, I, I had very little interest in seeing it because I thought... It's just uh, a typical teen romance. Why would I be interested in going to the cinema to watch that? I did see a few reviews that came through. uh, And this is where I think reviews can be quite helpful. They came through and they were saying, ignore the trailer. It's very misleading. It's just because they don't really know how to market the film. So they've just put it out there as a, a, you know, to try and capture it. It's been been advertised a lot on E4 and Channel 4, hasn't it? It's kind of some kind of tie in with their movie going yeah that's right and the original book that's based on won a children's book award as well didn't yeah. it so the, so the source material is kind of like um young adult young adult yeah but the way yeah. that it's been advertised on um particularly as i say the trailer and when it's been shown on things like e4 and and so on it's it's come across as very much a a sort of young teenager to mid teenagers sort of when it when it's advertised on e4 it's always on at like the same time as some crap American sitcoms on, so it kind of yeah. Trying to think, right. it's kind of tied into the same audience that watches that, I suppose. Yeah, that's what I. That's why I wasn't interested in it at all to begin with until I'd read those reviews. So, uh, as it turns out, those reviews that I did read were right. It is very misleading from the trailers. It's um, not a typical teen romance in many respects. There are a few teen, a uh, few moments in it where you get the impression that they didn't really know how to adapt to the source material to be anything more than just a teen lit adaptation. But then there are other bits in it that are really quite complex. So, first of all, there's a a sex scene in it, which is a little bit unexpected. I mean, I did realise it was 15 and it was about these two teenage um, um, lovers. But, yeah, it's quite... um, Not graphic, but it goes on for Mm. a bit. So that was interesting. Then there was um, a sort of implied rape scene which was also very unexpected and Mm. there is a lot of gratuitous violence towards both women and children so for you know to start off with those aren't really what you kind of expect in a film that's that's marketed in this way not that i'm saying that's a good that they're good things or necessarily bad Mm. things on their own they don't make or break a film but just to say that you know again it's made the trailer seem very misleading i think Mm. There's even for the briefest moment, if this is your sort of thing, a, a kind of semi-naked or fully naked, but you don't really see a lot of her, um, Saoirse Ronan. So if that's what you're looking for in this kind of film, you do get a bit of that. It's in the dark and as she's running through some woods, but there you go. Um, there's also, uh, I mean, yeah, there's the, the, okay, it, it was very weird and it was it didn't actually occur to me until the very next day when I was thinking about it and I had to text my wife and say hang on a minute was this have I got this right it's a bit weird she's gone to stay in this English countryside she's with her cousins are you putting are you are you ahead of me yet you're putting together that they're her cousins and it's her lover and there's a sex scene whoa yeah a bit yeah. weird 
That was one of the things that suddenly occurred to me, and I was just thinking, where, where in um, England, what? What? where where in England is the film based? Because I mean, there's some Norfolk. This is after <laughs> them. I mean, it brother d- and sister, they'd go for. So I mean, it doesn't give a specific place, or if it does, then it's not mm. somewhere I recognise. All you all you really know is it's far enough away from London. Right. Okay. So. Oh yeah, because England is London and the countryside, London, and then everywhere else. <laughs> so it's well, far you, enough away from London. If you watch EastEnders, England, England is basically London, Manchester, or Spain. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. But um, yeah. Okay. So then th- th- there's that side of it uh, of the film as well. But um, it, it's actually quite a good film. I was surprised. Mm. It's quite a good film. I think Ronan is very good as the character Daisy. She starts off a little bit lightweight, a bit typically, you know, miserable and angsty, a bit like a female version of um, Kevin from Kevin and Perry. She plays this American and she's got this accent and she's a bit of an she's got a bit of an attitude and she doesn't really want to be there. So yeah, you think okay, well this is just a very standard character and perhaps the plot's going to be a bit more interesting. But it, she does develop as the thing goes along. She's got a bit of OCD, so she's got a little quirk to her. She's a bit withdrawn. Uh, quite defensive when she's questioned over anything that's personal. Um, well, pretty much over everything, really. She just, just seems to be quite um, on the defensive about a lot of the things. Um, but yeah, over the course of, of the runtime, her character, it does quite gradually build into something a little bit more complex than that. And it's done reasonably well. It's done in a quite a, quite a natural way, um, to say that. George McKay is the love interest and the eldest of the cousins. Yes, both things. Um, and it's yeah, that side of the story is very mushy and it is very aimed at teenagers who are into that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's that's part of it, which seems to be because she's been in quite a lot of films like The Host. I think she was in mm. she was in yeah. Byzantium. That side of it, I get the impression it was meant for those that audience. They're trying to capture mm. those people. Bear in mind, it's still quite a, a sort of indie, indie-ish, British film. Mm. You know? Well, because it's... it's... The guy did The Last King of Scotland, isn't it, Kevin yeah, MacDonald? Yeah, yeah. So he's, you know, he's quite a... an interesting choice for him. It is, yeah, it's very strange. Um, yeah, but anyway, they, her and her boyfriend have got this weird... It's not a telepathic power. You, can't, you don't know whether the, the... Did I say husband? It's a boyfriend, sorry. George McKay. You did say boyfriend. Oh, I did say yeah. boyfriend, okay. Well, yeah. you don't really know whether he's <laughs> got these right. actual... <laughs> telepathic powers. You don't know whether he's talking to her through his mind, whether he can no. read people's minds, and whether he talks to animals and stuff like that. You don't really know. It's implied, but then it's also implied that you could just—I mean, it just could just be because they're so in love with each other, and isn't it amazing? Um, but it's no, also it, yeah, very funny. Things. I mean, you can end up with six fingers. Maybe you could also end up with the left. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. But um, there's a guy in the supporting cast called Tom Holland, who I've not really seen any, in anything else mm. before. Apparently he was in The Impossible. Which yeah, I he was very good in that. He's, yeah. he's very good in this, actually. Okay, he's got oh, quite good. a lot of natural humour about him, and he sort of lights up the screen when he's on it, and he does, it, he does his bit to light in the film as well, quite early on, and stop it being dragged down in this mopey teenage drama. Um so yeah, he's quite good. It might be a bit mean for me to say that um, Harley Bird, who plays the youngest of the cousins, uh, called Piper, uh, that she was annoying because mm. she is just being a little kid in a world where she's she can't find a mom and her brothers, and there's a threat of being killed by these fascist nutters all over the place, and you know, it, it's in this almost post-apocalyptic English countryside. 
So she just does what she's you would expect any young girl to do, I guess. And mm. um, so she does it as well as can be expected, but her character does get a little bit um, grating. But um, yeah, overall, it was, like I say, surprisingly enjoyable. Um, there's a few scenes I'm really just going to quickly say that there's, there's one scene in particular, which you do see in a trailer where um, they're at a picnic. OK, and there's a large big cloud and some sort of ash or maybe snow or something that's falling from the sky. And everyone sort of stands up and looks around and the dogs run off and the birds fly off. That scene is brilliant. Really good. One of the best scenes for that kind of thing um, in this genre. And it's re- just really well done. Properly scary at times, this film. Mm. Properly scary with that kind of thing. So it's it's done fantastically well it works a lot better without the shitty indie rock music over the top of it that's in the trailer as well that helps with the clangy guitars and whatever i don't know the bands in it you know the bands you get these days the young bands with the guitars and such anyway but (laughs) as a whole it's probably comparable to something like um as a film something like never let me go which admittedly was a lot Mm. better shares a lot of the same Similar feelings of, you know, impending doom and dread and there's a mystery and you don't really know what's quite happening all the way through. Um, it's a shame it gets a little bit peril of lovey towards the end. Um, mm. But it is a lot darker than I was expecting. And it's interesting that Steve pointed out that it's, you know, sort of advertised on E4 and, and channels like that. Because I was thinking long and hard about who the audience for this film is. It seems to have been aimed at a sort of... I don't want to say a female audience, but a sort of... The audience I mentioned for, like, The Host and Byzantium and Twilight and all those kind of films, it's not, though. It's probably more for people who are fans of um, TV shows like Misfits or Being Human, but it's a lot darker than they are. Um, less humour to it as well. It's Some of it's harrowing, properly harrowing, so it's not really for people who don't like tense films. But at the same time, the love story that goes through it, it runs all the way through makes it very cheesy at times which lets it down but overall a good film okay um no it did look did look interesting to me sony likes kind of that genre of film not teen emo romance but (laughs) post-apocalyptic end of the world kind of stuff Um, yeah it's really well made it's a good story it's a really good story so yeah you probably would like it actually steve i think uh, anyway, my review is a documentary, and everyone's probably thinking, Steve, watching a documentary, and it's not about sport. What's going on here? Well, I do watch documentaries from time to time, so get over it, listeners. Um, <laughs> this one is called The Great Hip Hop Hoax, produced and directed by Jeannie Finley. Um, it is a very interesting story. It's about um, two friends, um, Billy and Gavin, who are from Dundee in Scotland, uh, and they want to become rappers. Um, they answer an advert basically saying, are you the next M&M? They go down to London for an audition, get laughed out, basically derided as, uh, quote here, the, the uh, rapping proclaimers. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they so ba- and, you know, basically put off by saying rappers don't come from Scotland. So what they do is they take on a fake persona. They basically pretend to be from California. Um, and reinvent themselves as uh, Syllable and Brains, a, a rap duo from California. <laughs> and the, fil- the film basically looks at um, 
So basically, they end up living as these two characters pretty much 24-7. The film takes a lot of footage that they filmed themselves. It's from about 2000, I think, 2002. So they filmed a lot of it themselves, what was going on with their lives and everything there. They bid to make it as, as rappers under these personas. And the film really looks at two aspects, whether they could trick the music industry and kind of the strain that living a lie 24-7 kind of had on their friendship and on their lives. Um, basically, they pulled it off. No one really questioned their dodgy accents and everything because they were both really charismatic. And the music wasn't bad either, to be honest. I mean, listening to it, it's not the best, but it's not, it's not mm. terrible. And, and they pulled it off. They got signed to Sony um, <laughs> for two, two singles and an album. They went, they went to the Brit Awards. They partied with Green Day. They partied with Muse. They, they, um, went on tour with Eminem and performed before D12, which, you know, well, D12 is Eminem's <laughs> rap group, you know, pretty big deal. Yeah. And they were doing, um, amazingly, they were pulling it off. <clears throat> and it, it all, uh, I think there was some kind of takeover at Sony and a lot of people lost their jobs. So it kind of fell down around them then. But right up until they admitted it, nobody picked up on the lie. Um, but one of them, I think it was Billy, um, he had a wife back at home. She started having a kid and he, and he started to need to pull in kind of real money from it. And it wasn't really going anywhere in the end. Um, and I think their friendship ended up bearing the brunt of it. But basically, yeah, it's quite interesting to see how they managed to dupe big time record labels, record executives, you know, high-profile people and pull it off and, you know, manage to basically blag money to make an hour, money to go partying, partying with massive celebrities. It's just, it, it, it talks to both of them and the people around them and record executives. And the, probably the most telling quote from the whole thing, I mean, it still obviously won't spoil too much, but right at the end, you get this, this record executive person said, they they misunderstood the fact that they didn't need to pretend to be American to make it. They would have made it on the quality of their music and their personalities alone. You think, well, no, they wouldn't, because they went to an yeah. audition, laughed out of it. <laughs> so you're talking shit. The stuff, you know, <laughs> you are still talking shit now. When pretty much the premise of the documentary yeah. was, we can't make it as ourselves. We need to be pretend to be someone else. But, you know, they 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 made it onto like MTV with um, some show called Total Request Live, and basically took the mick out of Dave Berry for ten minutes, <laughs> which is you know always worth doing. But um, yeah, it's been it's been quite widely publicised. Works well, available now. It was did get a cinematic release, a limited one. It's now available on iTunes, Blinkbox, and BBC iPlayer um, under Storyville, um, that series of documentaries. Um, but I think you know, the, the worst thing about it is obviously it pretty much ended a friendship. But at the end of it, you kind of, it kind of makes you say, well, which of the two are happier now? You've got Billy who now works on an oil rig, but he's got a wife and a couple of kids and he seems quite happy. Or you've got Gavin who seems to be still chasing this fame, but absolutely getting nowhere 10 years on. And it kind of, you know, mm. which, which one would you rather be essentially at the end? It kind of leaves you making your mind up there. That's interesting. I mean, from the description, it sounds like it would be more of um, a satire of the actual music business. Uh, it, it's kind of it's not it's not really a satire. It's kind of half and half. Half of it kind of looks at how easily they managed to dupe 
the record business, the music business, and how they managed to get kind of what fame and notoriety they had. But the other half kind of looked, because they were lived like 24-7. Every time they were out, I think the only time, I think it was Billy, didn't speak an American accent was when he was in private or on the phone in private to his girlfriend. Everywhere else, they are acting as these characters. When they were awake, they were acting as these characters. They couldn't let it slip. I think there was, in the, in a documentary, one of them, they were at the Brit Awards, and they were drinking with Daniel Beddingfield for some reason. <laughs> in 10 years. Wow. He, he was big back. But anyway, you know, he was, and he said sort of something, well, where are you from? And he said, oh, from California. And he said, I thought you were from Scotland. And he thinks that he's bollocks the whole, he thinks he's got absolutely smashed. Started taking his Scottish <laughs> accent, absolutely bollocks the whole thing up for him. But, I mean, you know, don't, luckily I get away with it. But, um, Beddingfield never seemed the sharpest tool in the box, to be honest. But, but you know, it's like they, they lived as not themselves mm. every waking minute while this was going on to, to fool these people. And that and the fact that, you know, when obviously there was a point where it wasn't going quite the way they wanted, their friendship fell apart. And they were best friends. They were, li- you know, literally the best of friends. And it ended up, you know, there's pictures of them together at a premiere for this, but by all accounts, it's kind of wrecked their friendship. Yeah. That seems really interesting, Steve. Oh, I'm definitely going to give that a watch. I'll, I'll find, I'll dig that out on iPlayer. Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a watch, and it's very, it's very interesting. I mean, I don't think you could pull it off now with social media being obviously it's ten years on or so. Mm. Social media now, I don't think you'd be able to get away with that. Somebody was. No, it's yeah. them on Facebook or something. Going, no, I know them from Dundee. They're having you on, but yeah, you know they were they were in a time where they could pull it off, and they and they did, and it's quite yeah, amazing quite cool. that they actually managed it. Do you, do you think the record companies would actually care though, as long as they could still market it and make some money? See, that's the um, way that I would have assumed the documentary would yeah. end up going. It, um. By by the sounds of it, the record companies kind of laughed it off, but that was because. They were still put. They were still kind of until Billy left, and they didn't want to take Gavin on as a solo kind of artist. They were still meeting, even though they were getting shitloads of money, and ended up pissing it up the wall basically. But I looked at it; they were still producing the music. So if they got found out, they probably wouldn't have cared then. I mean, if they were just fucking about with the money and weren't making the music, and then they got found out, then yeah, there probably would have been some quite you know serious ramifications. But judging by the way the music industry is. Providing they were putting the music out, I don't think they really would have cared. Um, but obviously, living a living a lie twenty four seven is a bit of a yeah, mm. emotionally draining, I imagine. Hmm. Um, well, so what new releases have we got to review next week, uh, James? Uh, next week we are looking at uh, Captain Phillips, uh, which Owen's already mentioned today, and we, you know more of us will have seen it. We'll talk about Captain Phillips, and hopefully, although I'm struggling to find a showing near me at the moment, uh, the Escape Plan <laughs> featuring Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, so yeah, that's at least two of the films, and we'll see what else is about. Who knows? Clearly, uh, with a chance of Meatballs too, is there, isn't it? Oh, is it? I've still not even seen the first one. No? Although I noticed a poster today that said from the studio that bought you the Smurfs and Hotel Transylvania. And I did just think, why not just go from the studio that bought you Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Because people like that. <laughs> they didn't yeah. like those other ones that you're talking about. <laughs> but I've heard good things about the original. I've just not got around it's, to seeing yeah, it Yeah, it's yet. quite funny. It's all right. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, we'll be back in a minute with our um, recommendations. So our recommendations for this week, what's watched on television, uh, Friday night, there is actually quite a lot of good uh, choices if you're staying in on Friday night, if you've no social life and all that. Uh, five <laughs> past midnight uh, on ITV4 is Blazing Saddles. Uh, then you have got uh, Lethal Weapon at nine o'clock on, nice. on Five Star. Uh, on film four at nine o'clock, you're saving Private Ryan. And I see two at ten o'clock at the Born Identity. So get your Sky Plus other TV recording devices are available and watch a lot of good films on Friday. Uh, Owen, I believe you've also got one from Friday night. I do, yeah. It's a good day for TV, I think. Um, afternoon more. Anyway, it's right. m- yeah, more more late afternoon really. Yeah, True Grit, the original 1969 film by uh well starring john wayne as rooster cogburn uh that's my pick i talked about it quite a lot on the podcast so i'm not going to go over that already but um yeah brilliant film it's on film four at 20 past four um james your recommendation is my recommendation next Monday there is a Blu-ray. I'll, I'll get, it's very brief. I'll give you two: one for film fans and one for um, music fans. Because the film fans, the um, 35th anniversary steel box uh, Blu-ray of Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, is released on, on Blu-ray on Monday. That's one for your film and your horror fans. The other one is Morrissey, uh, 25 Live. Uh, I love a good concert film. Uh, spoken about concert films on here before uh this is the latest concert film first in nine years from morrissey and it's actually it's filmed at a high school uh which is really it's a really quite an intimate one uh for an artist of his stature uh celebrating 25 years as a solo artist apparently it's an absolutely fantastic uh concert film in terms of great editing great footage um very interesting for anyone who likes that kind of thing so that's my recommendation morrissey live 25 excellent i think that's all for this week's podcast then uh thanks to everyone who has listened and contributed um we'll be back next week um roughly the same time i expect with um the usual thing reviews of various films new releases and what we've been watching um and again, thanks for joining us and join us next week. The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman and Owen Hughes with original music provided by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics and on Twitter at at failedcritics.